In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God, glory to thee. Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, O treasure of your good and bestower of life, come and dwell in us, and cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, O good one. We have now come to the fourth talk on marriage and it's good that people have an interest. When you ask someone what's difficult in life, some say uh, studying at you know, university, some might say making a lot of money and some might say other things. But that's not really the most difficult. The most difficult today is to keep your marriage. The devil hates marriage. He despises marriage. And we don't need to speak about what is happening today, not only in Australia, and it's already happened in New Zealand, happened in England, it's trying to happen in America, all these things to distort marriage to change the definition of marriage from a man and a woman and soon to two people and later on it can be more people and, and, and the list will go on. Everything is against God's commandments. We spoke about that last time. Marriage is looked at as an arena. So what's an arena? Well, an arena is where we have... Uh, people who might compete in a competition. We have the arenas of the ancient times, the gladiators, where people were thrown in to fight amongst themselves or with lions, etc. And a marriage is also like an arena. It is very difficult because apart from all the external pressures to, de to destroy marriage with the divorces and all those things. There's also, within the marriage itself, that people just don't get on. There are those who interfere in the marriage. There's ego, like I said last time. People's pride that they don't want to say sorry to their um, husband or wife, to their spouse. People who think that marriage is something which is fun, sexual, enjoyable, and yet when they have to get down to business, when the fun's over, which usually takes about a year, and the children come along and the pressures come along, those marriages dissolve because those marriages are based on stupidity. They're not based on the true teaching of Christ of what is a marriage? What's the purpose of marriage? Why do people go to church? What's the blessing that the priest gives? What's the purpose of all that? Some people get married purely on looks. Some people get married on personality. 
Some people get married because of money. And there are so many other reasons of people why we've gone off, we've gone through all this in the previous talks. Now, I'm going to come to an introduction of, for this talk. The, the talk today is called Preventing Divorce. Not how to divorce, how to prevent divorce. A lot of advice of how to divorce. We have the lawyers that make a lot of money out of divorce. At your cost. But we don't hear much of how to prevent a divorce. And if there is something on that in the world, on the internet, on television, or some book, it's not from a Christian point of view. Some people might say, introduce pornography into the marriage and that will prevent a divorce. Others will say, um, you have to allow the, your um, partner or spouse sexual activities with other people, but they will still love you. That's the way it's going. But we need to know what does God say about how to prevent a divorce? What does the church teach? What did the saints teach who were pure? Not these filthy people who are full of every type of sin, like Hollywood and the rest of them, who, who are filthy themselves and want to make everyone else filthy. But look at what the saints teach, who, were, who, who through their struggle became pure, whose relics became fragrant or incorrupt completely where their bodies didn't even decompose, whose relics do miracles, That's who we should listen to. Read the Bible. Read the lives of saints. And when we do read holy books, spiritual books, we have to make sure that we get out of it something which is for our lives. Now, if you people are sick, some of you are single and want to get married, then look, read the books and try to get out of those books something that's going to help you. If you're already married, then you need to read and penetrate and say, how is this life going to help me? Not just read something and go, oh, look at that. The, the saint floated in the air. Those things happen. Is that going to help you? Some people just read for that. Or that they look at the saint, he went 40 days without eating. But is that going to help you? I chose two things which I, which I got out of the, um, the prologue of um, by this book, these books here. Saint Nikolai Velimirich, which is a, a Serbian saint. He died in the, I think, about 1950, in, the, in the 1950s. And they've now made him into two books. They used to be um, four volumes. And this is for every day of the year. So he writes about two to three pages, about three pages, that a person can read every day. 
It has a brief description of the lives. It has something to consider. It has something from the Bible and he interprets it. And just reading that can be, if some of you find it hard to do spiritual reading, even though you don't find it hard to read every newspaper and go on the internet for hours, but nevertheless, if some of you find it hard, then at least have one, this book, and read it every day. Make it part of your program to read it every day. So it's the prologue of Okrud, St. Nikolai Velimirovich. And recently, as I, re as I read it, I came across... Two considerations, one on June the 8th and one on June the 14th. And I'm going to read it to you and let's see what we can get out of it and see how can we apply that to today's talk. It says, A monk came to a church of Alexandria, which is in Egypt, and saw a woman kneeling before an icon of the Saviour, of Christ, weeping and crying out to God, you have abandoned me, O Lord. Have mercy on me, O merciful one. You have left me. When her prayer was finished, the monk asked the woman, Who has so wronged you that you are complaining so bitterly to God? The woman answered, Until now, no one has wronged me, and for that very reason I'm weeping. So no one has done anything to her. And she's saying, that's why, I'm that's why I'm upset. Now, some of you might say, well, how does that make any sense? Well, let's read on and see. No one has wronged me, and for that reason I'm weeping, crying, since God has abandoned me and has not visited me with any suffering for three years. During this time, neither... I nor my son has fallen ill, neither herself or her son has become sick, neither has anything befallen my cattle and poultry. In other words, because she was in the farm, nothing's happened to my chickens, which is, can happen, they can get sick, they, don't, they stop laying eggs, something can happen to the cow, cows, because they, they, these people depend on that. To live. Just like today, if we live in the city, people depend on a job. So a person can lose their job and have no money for their family. So here we can say in the farm, this is the things that can happen. Crops can fail, there can be hail, and all the crops that they, um, that they uh, put all that work into have been, was uh, destroyed. So, let's look at this. How does this apply? Well, I just said a little bit just now. How does it apply? It applies in the following. Today, Christians, Orthodox Christians, believe that being close to God or going to church, doing the, doing the fast, struggling, means that God protects us and nothing happens. And that's a sign that God is pleased with us. And that if we experience any difficulties, it means that God has abandoned us. But yet, the Holy Fathers and Christ himself in his teaching says the opposite. When you are visited 
with afflictions and sicknesses and sufferings, this is a sign that you are a true child of God. And when you are, have no problems whatsoever, then it says in there that you are, using the language of the, of the, um, of the, uh, of the Bible, a bastard, which means, a bastard means that you are not a true child, so illegitimate. That's, that's the child that, that's the, in today, like, a bastard child would be a child which was not uh, born within, within a marriage. For example, that's how. And, they, and the apostles who wrote that use the same expression to say that you are not a child of God. How many times I come across Christians who could be going to church for years, but as soon as a problem occurs, they pull their hair and they say, oh, this is bad, this is bad, and how can God do this to me? I go to church and I fast and I pray and I read and I confess and I commune and I read the Bible and whatever, that, that God is cruel. What have I done to him? And yet the saints rejoiced, as the apostles said, rejoice when you go through sufferings. And that's how the... That's how the Christians of old would would um that was their attitude towards suffering. So where do where do people suffer today in marriages? Elder Paisios, the Greek elder, he said the three major problems that people who came to him for advice had were the following: one, people with cancer, sickness; two, marital problems divorces, etc. And three, uh, what was it? Ah, mental illness, sorry, thanks. Mental illness. They're the main three things. Now, I'm not an elder, but let's have a look. People do ask advice. And uh, what I've noticed is that it's rare for someone not to have a problem, but I call mental illness God's love because mental illness gives humility. And today, people find it hard to humble themselves. So out of God's love, he, gives, he allows mental illness, which a lot of times is a result of our sins in any way. It's very rare today to speak to someone who's married that doesn't have problems. And it's very rare today for someone not to be sick physically. And yes, it's true that a lot of people are, have got, you know, that are dying. And cancer is also an expression of God's love. Now, what does that mean? All of you have been to supermarkets and seen a parent or parents with their children or child, and the child is going berserk because it wants a violet crumble or it wants a, pas- a packet of biscuits or it wants a juice or whatever it wants and it's in the in the um, what do you call it in the aisles like shaking going crazy like a fish when you take it out of the water and the parent is trying to control the child 
Now, let's see, what goes through our minds? Do we say poor woman? Maybe some of us might say that. What do the majority of us say? She doesn't, she must not discipline her children. I mean, how does a child become like that? How come other children not like that? Of course, there are, there are a number of reasons that could be the child could have some problem. But in general, our thoughts are correct. People don't discipline their children. When you see children growing up, 9, 10, 11, 15, 16, and you see them being rude, disrespectful, we all say that, that, oh, what, those parents must not even discipline that child at all. Do those, do those parents even care? That's why God says, in the, in, we, we read, don't spare the rod and spoil the child. In other words, discipline is a duty of all orthodox Christians who are bringing up children. Remember, the children are loaned. They're not, well, people, in, strictly speaking, they're not our children. They're God's children that God has given to parents to bring up. And God expects those parents to discipline the children. And that doesn't mean continually belt-ins and other things like that. There's a lot of ways of disciplining children. Some parents hit their children when they're three or too young. Child doesn't understand right from wrong. Or maybe when it gets six, seven, you might give it a little bit of a... Of a um, a, um, a whack and people say that's child abuse that's your business what you think it is but it has to be used properly it has to be used not when a person's angry when a person's gone lost it but when a person's in control I've actually said I've said to parents I think the child I think the child's due due for some medicine. What type of medicine? Cough medicine? No. It's called a hand medicine. That child's due and you got and and if and why? Because I can see that if that child continues to go on that then sometimes see, some children you don't have to do that. You can speak to them. Some children you can't speak to them at at, at times. It needs a lot of discernment. But I tell you one thing, adults that I speak to now, it's very rare for them to ever speak about being uh, smacked or these type of things. Most of them, they get upset is that they were ignored. Didn't, no one cared about them. So that's the same as God in our life. If we're true children, he disciplines us, not punish. Don't look at sicknesses or problems in our life as a punishment. I, was, I, had a, I had a theory a while ago. As time went on, I started to begin to think that I don't like using the word God's punishment. I began to think, I think it's more God's love for everything. Even if we've sinned, and the consequence of that sin is some problem, I believe that even that still is God's love. 
And as I was reading through some Lent, during Lent, some books, I came across something which says, which said there that God's punishment is reserved for the last, after the last judgment. In other words, that as he himself said, Christ himself said, that, the, that he will send those to Haiti, to hell, etc. Those at, at the last judgment. The, the saints say here on earth is healing, love, penances, everything which has to do with, has one aim, to bring us closer to God for our salvation. Even those who have died, it's not determined where they're going to go until the last judgment. And that's why the church has this, uh, this availability for people to pray for their loved ones. So that if they are in a, in a state which is not favourable, they are able through giving money to the poor, through prayers through liturgies, etc., to help those people even to be released out. Nothing is, is um, final until the last judgment. So let us not ever use the word, and even if we see somebody go, oh, look at those people, they're suffering because of their sins. God is punishing them. That's what it means by judgment, because we don't know and we don't know. There was a woman a few years ago who got, who, whose husband was like a, like a beast and he somehow mixed her up in some very, very, very bizarre things. And somehow she was it was, it was, on, it was in the news, she was left in the boot of the car somewhere, I think in the seat, I'm not sure, and she was left there for days and days and she died. And she participated in those things that her husband was doing some sexual things and involving other people, etc. And some can say, oh, see, that's her punishment. I didn't look at it as her punishment. I looked at it as that God allowed that for her to suffer for those many days to cleanse and cleanse and cleanse and cleanse and to give her a better opportunity in the next life. And we've done all this in talk two, which talks about violent deaths, etc., like deaths which are really horrible, that those deaths actually help a person in the next life. Anyway, I wasn't meant to speak about all that, but somehow we went there. So, God's mercy and God's love, God's compassion and healing is why these things happen to us. Don't use the word punishment. Punishment is in the next life, after the last judgment. That's one thing. So what does it mean here? It means that, as well, when people are in a marriage and they're experiencing problems, it's an indication that we need to fix these problems up. And many people, through the problems, have actually become closer and their marriages have become stronger, like a tree. Trees that 
have, uh, some, some trees that when the wind blows, their root system goes down even more into the ground so they can endure the big winds. The trees that don't do that, they'll fall over. It's the same with Christians. We're like trees. The more God allows afflictions and sufferings, the more we become deeply rooted in the faith. We become stronger. Not weaker, stronger. The second one that I read on June the 14th said, The wise St John Christum says the following, No place will save us if we do not do the will of God. It is said of a certain monk living in a monastery that five of the brethren loved him and one offended him. So this monk lived in a monastery. Five of the fathers there, they liked him. They loved him. But one of them was against him. Because of this, he, removed, he moved to another monastery. But in the new monastery that he went to, eight of the brethren loved him and two offended him. So he ran off to a third monastery. He, seven loved him and five offended him. So he went to a fourth monastery, but on the way he thought to himself, how long shall I go running from place to place? I shall find no rest in the whole world. I would be better to learn patience. He pulled out a piece of paper and wrote on it in large letters, I shall endure all things for the sake of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When he arrived at the fourth monastery, only one monk loved him and the rest offended him. But he began to bear their offences with patience. As soon as anyone offended him, he would pull out the piece of paper and read, I shall endure all things for the sake of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, with patience, he succeeded and all came to love him and he remained in that monastery until his death. How does that apply? Well, as I was reading it, it said the first monastery, then the second marriage, monastery, and then what was ringing in my head is second marriage. Then he went to the third marriage, to, to the third monastery, then it was third marriage. And then he went on to the fourth marriage, even though the church doesn't bless fourth marriages, people just live together. And then the next person, and the next partner, the next partner, and the next partner. Uh, always looking for Mr. Wright. But the thing is, or Mrs. Wright, but the problem is that people have to think, are you Mr. or Mrs. Wright yourself? Perhaps the problem is yourself. So by reading them, this book, which comes obviously from a monastic book, because people read monastic books, they read Lives of Saints, they read about, as I said before, silence, fasting, vigils, strict obedience, how people were obedient to their elders, how they lived away from everyone. These things are not achievable to people living in the world. So we're reading these lives of saints and going, oh, wow, look at that. That father, he lived in the desert by himself. I'm a freak. Why don't, why don't I go and live by myself? And that's what a lot of people do. They cut off from everyone under the guise of, um, I'm doing this because I want to be with God. But really the reason is because they don't get on with anyone. These saints that left and went and 
lived on their own in the desert were already had reached very high levels of sanctity. They already lived with people. But we should read these lives and get out of it what is beneficial for us. And what's beneficial here, especially for married people, is that I shall endure all things for the sake of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In other words, stay where you are and fix up the problem. I was speaking to a, a woman whose relative just recently divorced. So the woman, so her relative, which is another woman, a cousin of hers, she divorced. And um, and she divorced maybe a year ago. I mean, she's, I mean, she thinks she's had already three partners. And it will go on. She'll have another one and another one and another one and another one and another one. Why? And sorry, and what's very important that this woman told me, she actually said to me, Do you know what my cousin said to me recently? I go, Why? She goes, Maybe I just should have stayed where I was. She will be used, she will be hurt. And you know what happens? God can give us a cross to carry within the marriage that a person's in. It's a cross. But when we say to God, I don't want that cross, I'm married, my husband, my wife's difficult, I don't want that cross, I don't want to carry that cross, I'm going to throw it down. So what happens then is the person then leaves that situation, throws away the cross and goes to another life. But the only problem is that they will have to carry a heavier cross than the first cross. Their suffering will be more than what it was from the first cross that they had. Remember that story I told you that there was a monk that was complaining and said, oh, God's given me so much suffering, I can't take it. My cross is too heavy. So I don't know whether it was in a dream or a vision. And an angel came to him and took him to a room. And in the room were all these crosses. Small, big, large, all these type of things. Very big. And the angel said to him, okay, well, you're not happy with the cross that you've been given. Which cross do you prefer? Because you, since you can't endure the suffering. So he looked around and he found the smallest cross. He says, I want that cross because I don't want to suffer much. I want that cross. And the angel says, but that's the cross you already had. In other words, the cross wasn't even great what they had. But we make it big. We have a certain problem in our life and we make out that we are the, we are the most worst off of, the, of them all. I've got problems with my legs, for example. Some of people ask me, well, how are you today? I go, oh, 
problems with the legs on the circulation, whatever. They go, oh, that's what I go, well, yeah, that's, it is difficult, but there's others that don't have any legs. So when I think like that, I, um, it releases from me any thoughts of woe to me and woe is me and all these stupidities that come in our head, selfish thoughts. Like it's like we're the only ones in the world. When we have problems in the monastery, problems with the monastic life, some difficulties, as, as obviously, like you people, as married people, have difficulties. Well, as men, men, in a monastery, we have difficulties. And we sometimes complain, oh, it's difficult, it's difficult. But then I think to myself, that there are, like Kosovo, for example, where those, the Serbian monks there, nuns, live in an area which is full of Muslims, fanatical ones. They don't even know at any moment that they could come in and kill them or rape them. Just living in that fear. The other, those, who lived during the, those who lived during the KGB days in Russia lived in, in, in constant fear of of um, being put in jail, tortured, killed. So I say to myself, that we're not even anywhere near that. I'm going to read now from the life of the Apostle and Evangelist Matthew. As I'm reading it, I want, I'm going to ask the question at the end, what's that got to do with marriage? Because I always say people should read the lives of saints. And as I read this, well, I read this years ago, and one part hit me out of the whole life. And I always remembered that part, and it helped me, especially when I have temptations to say certain blasphemies, which a lot of us say. It's a certain, and I want you to listen to it, and I want to see whether any of you can work out how does that apply to, to us in the world, to people in the world, especially to those that are married. So, I'm going to read a little bit quick because I don't want to waste um, the time. And then you, you think about it as I'm reading through. What's this got to do with the, the marriage talk? What's this got to do with divorce? What's this got to do with preventing divorce? There was a prince of a city whose name was Fulvian. His wife and son were possessed by demons. When they first saw the Apostle Matthew, who came to the city... They cried out against him with wild, threatening voices. That's typical of possessed people. When they go any holy um, people or holy objects, they do react. The apostle rebuked the unclean spirits and expelled them. And those who were healed fell down before the apostle and meekly followed after him. Having been informed of what had happened, the prince of the city, the husband, in other words, of the woman and the father of the boy, at first rejoiced over the healing of his wife and son, but later, at the prompting of the demons, he became enraged at the apostle because the whole city was going over to him, forsaking its gods. So this city was a pagan city. And when the apostle Matthew performed this, this miracle, the people were rejecting the pagan gods and were turning to Christianity. So he planned how to bring about Apostle Matthew's destruction. But that very night, 
the Saviour appeared to the Apostle, commanding him to take courage, promising to remain with him throughout the approaching suffering. Christ said to him that you will now suffer. When the morning dawned, the Apostle, together with the faithful, chanted praise unto God in the church. The Prince sent forth four soldiers, sent four soldiers to arrest the Apostle. But when they arrived at the temple of the Lord, darkness immediately seized them and they were barely able to return to the Prince. When they were asked why it was they had not brought Matthew back with them, they replied, We heard him preaching in the church, but we could neither see nor lay hold of him. Now what's all that got to do with marriage so far? Nothing. Unless if your wife's nagging, you might want to become to, to be able to, to disappear and the opposite. <laughs> the opposite, where the, where the husband's nagging and then the wife just wishes she can just not be seen. But that's not got, that's not got to do with this with what I'm talking about. Then the prince grew all the more angry. He sent even more soldiers, this time armed with weapons, commanding them to bring Matthew back by force and that, and that should anyone attempt to oppose them or defend Matthew, to kill them. But these soldiers also returned empty-handed, for when they had come near the church, a heavenly light illumined the apostle and the soldiers, unable to see him, were seized with fear and casting aside their weapons, fled away half dead from fear and related what had happened to the prince. So, so far, can anyone see what's got to do with marriage at all? No. Then the prince flew into a dreadful rage and left with a large number of his servants intending to lay hold of the apostle himself. As soon as he reached the apostle, he suddenly was struck blind and had to ask for a guide. Then he begged this apostle to forgive him his sin and to give sight again to his blind eyes. The apostle, making the sign of the cross over his eyes, over the eyes of the prince, restored his sight. Thus the prince recovered the sight of his bodily eyes, but not of his soul, not his spiritual eyes. For it was blinded by hate, and he did not acknowledge that the miracle was from God, but rather as a result of sorcery or magic. Uh, that's how they looked, that if someone had power that was greater than their power, then they thought that they were like sorcerers, even though they themselves were mixed up in magic and things like that. There's no logic. Um, that's how a lot of people are today. Like um, anything that happens to their family, straight away they go, oh, someone's done magic. Someone's done magic to us. My son didn't get into university, failed, can't, or can't get a girlfriend, or whatever. That means can't get a job. That means that someone's done sorcery. Someone's done magic. So they go, over to, they go to another witch to try and undo what the supposed other witch has done. And it's the battle of the witches. But the problem is that a lot of times it's got nothing to do with that. People are superstitious. And the next talk... I will be speaking in detail about that because there are true accounts of magic and magic that's used against couples and I'm going to be going through that in, with God's help in the next talk in detail. I have a lot of, a lot of information on that uh, because a lot of times it's made up, people think, and a lot of times it's true that some, someone has done something. 
and you'll find that very, very, uh, I won't say interesting because I don't like people that come here for interest. If you want, if you want, to, in, if you want to find some interest, go watch a documentary. That's, this is not here for interest. When I ask people, so how'd you go on the talk today? I found it very interesting, my face drops. I'm not, I'm not here to stimulate your interest. I'm here for the salvation of your soul, not to stimulate people's interest. Don't, don't, don't say that to me. This is a matter of life and death. Spiritual life, spiritual death. That magic exists, it exists. That it's used a lot, it is. The further away we go from God, the more people get involved in it. The closer we are to God, people don't go there because they know how serious and bad it is. A person who believes that something's been done on them, if they go to a magician or sorcerer, whatever you call them, a witch, if you go to them, then you're tied. In other words, it's very hard to get the demonic influence off you. If you go to church and get the priest to read some prayers, etc., then there is... Uh, then you can get that thing off you a lot of times. But if you've gone to them, it's very difficult. Very, very difficult. Like I've had people that have come and have said they've got influence. I don't do exorcisms. But just a paraclysis like we did today, commemorations in the liturgy, can go away. As long as the person's in the church, then a lot of these things are solved. But when you, go, when you go to those doorsteps, I've seen people that have gone to those doorsteps, they suffer. They, a lot of it can go away, but there always will be traces of this demonic energy on that person to the, to the day they die. They're forgiven. They can be forgiven, but it doesn't go away. So you don't go. Taking the apostle by the hand... He led him to his own palace as though to give him honour. But in his heart, he plotted wickedly to put the Lord's apostle to the stake as a sorcerer. To burn him, in other words. But the apostle, seeing what was really in the prince's heart and his evil intentions, reprimanded him, saying, False tyrant, will you quickly do what you have planned to do to me? Do what Satan has put in your heart, but I, as you see, am ready to endure all for my God. Then the prince commanded his soldiers to lay hold of the holy Matthew and to stretch him out face down upon the ground and to fasten his hands and feet to the ground with spikes. When this was done, on the tyrant's command, the servants brought a great quantity of branches, wood and tar. Placing all this on the holy Matthew, they set it alight. Yet when the fire rose up in a great flame, and all thought that the apostle of Christ had already perished therein. Suddenly the fire was extinguished and the holy Matthew was seen alive and unharmed, glorifying God. So, so far, apart from the magic, which I helped you a little bit to understand how that applies today, so far I don't think much this has got to do with marriage, perhaps. All the people were terrified at the sight of such a great miracle and they gave praise to God of the apostle. But the prince grew all the more enraged through refusing to acknowledge the power of God in what had happened, he made an evil accusation against the righteous man, 
calling him a sorcerer, saying, It is by sorcery that Matthew has extinguished the fire and remained alive. Then the prince gave orders that more wood be brought, and they soaked him with oil, pitch, and tar, and firewood was set beneath him and was set on fire. Furthermore, he commanded that twelve of his golden idols be brought and set setting them in a circle about the fire. So they had these go- their, their gods, whatever they believe in, and he put them all around in, in a circle so as to, in other words, that the gods, their gods are going to actually uh, stop S- Apostle Matthew of doing any sorceries so the fire won't go out. He called upon them for aid. He, the, the, the prince called upon the idols for aid that through their power Matthew might not be saved from the fire. But the apostle prayed to the Lord that he revealed his invincible power and made known the powerlessness of the gods of the pagans and put to shame those who put their trust in them. Suddenly the flame of the fire shot forth upon the golden idols with a loud clap as of, as of thunder and they melted like wax from the heat and many of the unbelievers that were standing about were burned as well. And from the burning idols there issued forth a flame in the form of a serpent and it stretched itself toward the prince, threatening him to such an extent that he was unable to flee or save himself from the danger until, with humble pleas, he called upon the apostle to deliver him from destruction. So his 12 little idols didn't really help that he put around. Not only that, the fire became so great that it became like a serpent and then it was going to burn him and he had to call on Matthew and say, please help. Well, that's a bit of a clue. I'll give you a little clue, even though that's not the essence of what I want to talk about. There's, a, there's an example too of those who go to magicians and run here and run there when Christ is more powerful than them. The church is more powerful. They're scared of the church. When, the, when, when people get possessed and they start shouting out in church, a lot of times what they say is that they hate the priests. The apostle rebuked the fire and straight away the flame died down and the figure of the fiery serpent van- vanished. The prince wished to bring the saint out of the fire with honour, but the saint, having prayed... Lord, into thy hands I surrender my soul, departed into heavenly joy. Once the prince saw the miracle, he said that he wanted to give honour to the saint, but the saint then died. Then the prince ordered his servants to bring forth a golden platform and set thereon the precious body of the apostle, which had not been harmed by the flame, and then carried it to the palace. So this person changed, it seems. Yet even then did he not have perfect faith, and for this cause commanded that an iron box be made and that the remains of the apostle be placed in it, like a coffin, one can say. This being done, it was sealed on all sides with lead and cast into the sea. The prince then said, If he that kept Matthew whole in the midst of the fire will preserve him also from the depths of the sea, truly he is the only God, and him only we worship, forsaking all our gods who were powerless to deliver us from the destruction in the fire. So... From this, you can see this person. First, his son and wife were healed by the apostle who were possessed. Did he repent? No. Then he became blind and the apostle cured him. Did he repent? No. Then 
he was he saw that the um, the the first fire nothing happened, and then the second fire nothing happened, and not only that he called on Matthew and said, "Please help me because the fire was going towards him." So these people, as you can see, don't change. Just an unrepentant creature that doesn't that doesn't want to change. No sooner had the iron box with the precious relics been cast into the sea than the saint appeared at night to the bishop of the city saying, tomorrow go to the seashore and take up my body. In the morning the bishop together with the multitude of the faithful set out at, for the indicated place. There they beheld the iron box riding upon the waves and they praised the Lord with hymns of jubilation for delivering his, un, his worthy servant from fire and water. When they found out what had happened, the prince and his nobles came and this time, fully believing in our Lord Jesus Christ, confessed aloud that he is the true, the, the, he is the one true God who preserved unharmed his servant Matthew, both, whom, both when he was alive in the fire and even after his death from, from the water. And falling down before the casket containing the relics of the saint, he besought the Holy One's forgiveness and expressed a heartfelt desire to be baptised. The bishop, seeing the faith and fervour of the prince, catechised him, taught him the orthodox faith, and having taught him the truths of the holy faith, baptised him. And when he's... And some of you are thinking now, is he going to change again? He might change again. So he's been baptised. Many people did. They were baptised and they changed. They went back again to their pagan gods. So we have to wait and see what's going on here. And when he placed his hand on his head and was ready to utter his name, there came a voice from on high saying, call him not Fulvian, because that was his name, his pagan name, but Matthew. In other words, the prince was given the name at his baptism of the apostle Matthew. Having thus received the apostle's name in baptism, the prince strove to initiate the life of the apostle. Within seven days he destroyed all the idols of his kingdom and had all his people baptised. The apostle then appeared in a vision to the bishop and said, Ordain the, the prince a priest and then his son a deacon. After three years you will depart to the Lord. Let, uh, let the prince who has my name become bishop and let his son be his successor. After three years the bishop departed to the Lord and priest Matthew, the ex-prince, was made bishop. He spread Christianity and converted many from idolatry. Then he himself passed on to the Lord after a long and God-pleasing life and standing with the holy evangelist Matthew before the throne of God, he prays in our behalf to God that we may also inherit the everlasting kingdom of heaven. Amen. What's the message that I want to say of this life? How does this apply to married life? Who knows? I gave a hint through it. Patience? Maybe patience, yes. Alyssa, what do you think? The ego. The ego. Who had the ego? The prince. That's true. Trusting God. Trusting God, that's true. A bit more. There's one aspect of it. I said it in there. Said it on purpose. I said he'll never change. 
So I said that on purpose. I knew it was going to change. I just said it on purpose because that's what people say to me. My husband's never going to change. My wife's never going to change. There's no hope. There's no, there's, there's, there's no point. The marriage is over. There will never be a change. Continually, you hear the same words. Sorry? It's pride that we know who's going to change and who's not going to change. How do we know that? When I read this many years ago, I always remembered it. And just sometimes when I get angry at some people and you see them, they just... They just don't want to change, and you just, they, even though they even see miracles and this and that, and I just, on the top of my tongue, I want to say, on the tip of my tongue, I want to say, these people never going to change. I go, no, don't say that, because there are so many examples from the lives of saints and other examples of people who destroyed monasteries, killed monastics, raped nuns, all these things, and yet they're saints of the Orthodox Church. We have no right to say that, to actually say that, a per, that that person will never change. I'm surprised you didn't even notice that I even said it. Did you say, oh, he's, he's wrong? Did you notice it, that I was wrong? Or is the heat making you fall asleep? <laughs> never, never say that. It's blasphemy. That's what it means by judgment. That's the worst form of judgment that we believe, that we know. And yet, there are so many examples of people who everyone had given up and thought they'll never change, and they changed. Okay, we'll have a, now we'll have our first break, five min, uh, three or four minutes. Water, drink, tea, coffee, whatever you want, and then come back quickly. So, never say a person is not going to change. It's one of the biggest sins. It's blasphemy because you're saying that God can't change that person. Remember in the first talk that I did on marriage, talk 54, this one now is 57, so it's 54, 55, 56, it's fourth talk. St. John Chrysostom, he writes there, if you have a difficult wife, or, or husband, doesn't really matter, if you have a difficult wife, you must bear with her bravely, you must correct her faults with patience. If you endure, God who is watching you will reward you for your patience. So the person that said patience is correct. Your wife may also repent and be saved. And if she does not change, you will not lose your reward for your patience. So someone who's in a marriage and is patient, at the end of it all, the person may not change. We don't know. But the person who endured will not will lose their reward from God for enduring to the end. Now, I'm going to read a wonderful example from the life, from the amazing, this book here, The Amazing Life of Papa Dimitri, the Man of God, a Greek married a uh, priest, and this is uh, published by Orthodox Witness. So those who are interested, www.orthodoxwitness.org. And um, that is an, uh, an excellent book of a married priest. 
A little bit about him before we go on to a thing. It says, Father Demetrius was born in 1902 and reposed in 1975, so he wasn't that long ago. He was married priest who had nine daughters. During the Second World War, the Greek communists tried to make Greece communist. As you know, after the Second World War, Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, all these countries that weren't communist, Russia was, but they weren't, after the Second World War, they became communists. They tried to make Greece communist as well. So he, he lived, uh, so Saint Demetri Elder, uh, Father Demetrius lived during those times. After the Second World War, when the Germans left, from 1946 to 1949, Greece went through what's called civil war. And many Orthodox priests compromised and became communists because they, their lives were threatened, mostly, as I said, out of fear. Father Demetrius's wife, with Presbytera, Matushka, as he said there, repeatedly tried to force her husband to join the Communist Party like the other priests. And that's, and let's have a look at this. I've taken some parts out of it. Father Demetrius was a very devout priest. And, in, and he used to like to do what's called 40 days liturgies, 40, a series of 40 liturgies, one every day for 40 days. Of course, monasteries, a lot of monasteries serve every day anyway. But married priests don't serve every day. It's very rare. St John of Kronstadt did. But he lived with his wife as brother and sister. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, uh, like a, a really a, a true marriage, as one can, one can say. Obviously, they had no children. Both remained virgins to the, to, the, to, to the day they died. But Father Demetrius was a married priest with children. And, he, and he's a holy person. But so that shows that sexual relations, having children, don't stop a person becoming holy. But that's in the next talk with the magic on the, on the sexual relations. Father Dimitri relates the following in his own words. In November of 1968, I set out to do the 40 liturgies, 40 liturgy series once more. Every time I have set out to do these services, Satan attacks Presbytera, Matushka, in other words, his wife, with thoughts of stopping me. She pesters me with all kinds of senseless warnings. You will get sick, she says. You will die alone in the church of the archangels. He used to go out into the mountains. And the people will laugh at us. Of all the priests that I asked, no one told me that you should do this. So she used to, used to ask other priests, my priest, my, my, my husband does these 40 days, goes, oh, it's not necessary. If you get sick, she said to him, I will not take care of you. I will bake no prosphora for the liturgies. Do whatever you want. And much more did she say. So I pretended not to listen, he says. I pretended not to listen, just didn't answer. Maybe it's a good advice sometimes when people are in that state. Below, then, because he was suffering so much, remember this is 1968, he already suffered during the Second World War with the communists, with, with, um, with, um, with her, and after in the Civil War. So he was continually being badgered by her for many, many years. He wrote a letter to Elder Ephraim of the Holy Mountain, not the Elder Ephraim in Arizona now, Elder Ephraim of Katunakia, that's another 
elder Ephraim. And he wrote back an answer to him about his problem with his wife. He said, Beloved brother in Christ, Father Demetrius, I was grieved by the matters about which you wrote me. What can I tell you? First, you have to understand, Elder Ephraim, this Elder Ephraim was holy, was a holy person. Permit me to share a couple of suggestions with you. First, when your presbytera, in other words, when your wife, grieves or upsets you, do not pray that God may deliver you from her, but rather pray that God enlighten her and give patience to you. That in itself is such a wonderful, powerful advice. I got confused when I first read I go, what does he mean? Well, of course you want to be delivered. I misunderstood it. I thought he said, you don't pray for her to stop pestering you. He must have said, Father Dimitri must have said to the elder, I wish I can get rid of her, I wish she can go, or something like that. I think he just couldn't take her. He, He found it difficult to endure. Oh, how can that be? But he's holy. Well, let's see how he became holy. So it says, he, the, the elder says, this holy elder said to this priest, don't ask God to be delivered, to be rid of her. Ask God to enlighten her, yes, and ask God to give you patience to endure what you're going through. The saints did not ask God to take away their sorrows and tribulations from them, but rather to give them patience to endure them without complaining. Now, this sounds contradictory. If he's saying the saints didn't ask to take away, we shouldn't run away from afflictions and tribulations. We should ask God to give us patience and to endure, yes. But at the same time, when someone is, is doing something that's bad, like she was, obviously you're going to pray for their enlightenment. That's why he said, ask for enlightenment, for her to be enlightened, but especially for yourself, ask for patience and endurance. Tribulations and sorrows, says the elder, my brother, are the means, the vehicles that would lead us to paradise. That's what I asked that off at the beginning of the talk that the woman that was crying about her chickens and all that. The saint is saying here, tribulations and sorrows, in other words, sufferings, that's the way that we go to heaven. Through sufferings, Apostle Paul says, through sufferings and tribulations do we obtain the kingdom of heaven. But we, don't know, we, we, we forget about that. We get a headache and we think that God's abandoned us or that God's cruel because we've got a headache or some other problems that we have. No. Sorrows, sufferings, picking up our cross is how we're saved. We have to learn that tonight. If we don't go away with much, go away with that. Do not expect anything else in this world. Joy and gladness are reserved for the life to come. True joy and gladness, full joy and gladness, in other words, he's saying, is in the next life. Obviously, we're going to experience some joy and some, and some um, gladness in this life. But that should not be our, our only aim, to be constantly joy, joy, joyous like Father Christmas. That's not what we're here for. We're here 
to suffer because through suffering we obtain the kingdom of heaven. And obviously, during that, obviously we, 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 we will experience some, obviously, human joy. And also we will experience spiritual joy. But where, where it's wrong is when a person says, more, 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 I want it all the time. Then you wonder why people become drug addicts. Or go and enter, enter some religions where they're in some deceptive state, where they come all the time in some state where they believe that they've got the Holy Spirit and they're all the time in joy, forgetting, well, what does the Bible say? Does Christ not say in the Gospel that you will have sorrow in this world? John 16, 33. Does Christ not say many are the sorrows of the righteous? Does the Psalms not say narrow and sorrowful is the way? And... Um, so many other sorrows of the righteous, the Psalms. Narrow and sorrowful is the ways from Matthew. These things we read every day, says the saint. Every day we read these things. So what's your problem? Sorrow gives, joy, gives birth to joy. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. We're saying here that sorrow actually gives birth to true joy, not false joy. What's false joy? Watching a movie, going out dancing, um, uh, and other things like that. Those things don't give us... Some things can give us human joy, which aren't sinful. Nothing wrong with going out for a drive, looking at the ocean, and experiencing some joy with your children. That's not sinful. But there's also things that are sinful that people think are joyful. But true joy... The spiritual joy comes from suffering. That's the mystery of Christianity. So that's why the saints who suffered, that's why when you read the life of Elder Paisios, you see that he suffered and suffered and suffered so much, but yet he was full of joy, so much joy that all the depressed people that would come to him, all those with problems, he would give them joy and they would walk off joyful. So the saints who suffered immensely gave joy to so many people because joy comes from suffering. If there were not any tyrants, we would have no martyrs. Have courage then and do not lose your hope. You do well, very well, that you may that you pray often and ask help from God. Do so always. So the, the saints praising him and saying, the elders praising Father Demetrius said, when you pray for God to give you help in your problems, that's good. But don't ask to be free of it. In other words, oh God, take, take her away. Like people today, they, they might say, I just want to pray that God take him away from the husband or take her away, get rid of her, out of my life. Or let's just divorce and that way I can get rid of her or him.
But I also consider it a good thing to tell you that you must also say the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Obviously, being a monastic saint, he was chief, he wanted the, the saint to learn. He wanted the, the father Demetrius to learn this. In this, you will find great consolation. Hold the prayer open in your hand and repeat this short prayer: Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Since you are a priest, no one will misunderstand you. In others, is saying because you're a priest, no one's going to be going to think of you anything that you're holding like a prayer rope, right? But lay people, it's a bit sometimes a bit too much when you see lay people holding ropes and you think to yourself, what's going on? I mean, it's not a sin, but I always believe that when it can give you pride. See, a monastic, he holds a rope. That, that's, that's it. A priest, yes, he can hold a rope. Lay people should do prayer rope. But no one hardly comes to church with prayer ropes. So as soon as you come to church with a prayer rope, Everyone's going to look at you. Everyone's going to gawk and look at you. Oh, look at him. What does that do? It gives you pride. Oh, they're looking at me because I'm special. And that's why the Optin Elder says, don't do things out of the ordinary. Just be normal. Don't, don't stand out. Before I became a monk, I always had a prayer rope. I used to go to church with prayer rope, but no one ever saw it. That was, that was the thing. I don't want people to see it and to think, oh, look at him. He's got a prayer rope. Now, some will think I'm a freak, that's okay, that's good for my humility. But they're not the dangerous ones. The dangerous ones are the ones that are saying, oh, look at him, he's good, he's holy, he's, he does prayer rope. See? So we, we don't do things out of the ordinary. Uh, so hold the prayer rope, rather teach. And he says you can even teach your parishioners to also say this prayer. You will see in time how much joy it will bring to you. When someone's suffering and they're praying then they experience spiritual joy to some extent and God gives according to the person's humility. So when a person has no problems and they do prayers and they feel spiritual joy, then mm, you've got to say something's not right. That's a bit dangerous. Joy comes from suffering, spiritual joy. And why? Because the suffering humbles us so that when God does give us some consolation, we don't become proud. But when we've got no problems, say for example a wife has got a husband who's a brute and the husband's got no, unloving, has no, doesn't even care about his wife, doesn't even feel no empathy for her and this woman's suffering. She's suffering. He puts her down, he talks against her, whatever. And that woman in, is basically nothing left of her. She's just completely smashed to the ground. And she goes and does some prayer. And she might have a, a spiritual experience of a little there. She's not going to really get rid of that proud because she's already on the ground. She might not even notice it. She just, she's suffering so much. So true spiritual life comes out of suffering. Anything outside of that is demonic. So, so sorry, say the prayer at all times, whenever, wherever you are, whatever, you, whatever work you do. Do not abandon it ever. Repeat it, sometimes with your tongue, sometimes with your mind, mystically, that is, without anyone hearing you. 
I will ask you that as we, the unworthy, remember you in our prayers, that you remember us also, beloved brother. I will never forget you. Your face is engraved in my soul. Your divine words resound in my ears continually. Blessed is the time that I met you. Glory be to God for all things with Christ's love. Priest, monk, Ephraim, Katunakia, the holy mountain. That was the letter that he received. Now, let's have a look after that. After receiving that letter, let's have a look how, how this priest deals with his wife. Father Demetrius relates the following. A lady with her younger sister came to visit me on an afternoon of July 15th, 1967. I took them home for a, for a suite and then went off to the church of the archangels to venerate the icons and clean the church. He loved the church of the archangels. I think, I think that wasn't even his parish uh, in the village. I think it was uh, like a, what's called like a chapel outside in the mountains because Greece has got the main church in the village. Then they've got all these little chapels around some villages could have 15 chapels dedicated that people built from years before. So a miracle might have happened to that person. That's they, they feel that the St. Haralambos helped them, so they'll build the church to St. Haralambos. So there's all these chapels. And on the feast day, like my mother's village, I, don't, I forgot now what the main church is, but uh, her, uh, one of the chapels outside of the village is St. Haralambos. Actually, she was born on, that, on, on, on the same day. And they would celebrate that feast day at that chapel. This particular saint, when it wasn't a major feast day where people would go, he used to go there a lot, clean the church out, pray to the archangels and serve, and serve there. While the lady took a nap, her sister began lecturing Presbytera and our daughters on modernism and other such things. First, she posed the question to Presbytera, why should the girls stay behind the times when it comes to cinema and modern fashion? Why aren't you letting your children wear modern clothes and let them go to the cinema and then suggested they should change their lifestyle, not to be like pious girls, religious, but they should be modern girls. Presbytera, even though she's the wife of a priest, accepted these things as true. As soon as our guests left that evening, she pestered me with her newfound ideas. She accused me, among other things, of keeping the girls behind the times, planning for them all to become nuns, and which wasn't true, and being incompetent for not being able to marry them off successfully, because in the villages, you know, to marry the girls off. And she, so she blamed him for everything. She was on her rampage, one can say. She even spat on me and tried to hit me, but glory be to God. Now, you, some of you might say, this is, this is what's going on here. How can this be? She's a wife of a priest. It's... Um, A lot of married priests, their main cross is their wife. Sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes the wife's very pious and the priest is a pest. He's lost himself. This is typical. The demons will hit the wife and the children a lot of times too to get back at the priest, to stop the priest doing the work. That's why when people 
say, I want to become a priest, a married priest, the bishop should first examine the wife. How about your wife? How, how's she? And if the wife has got problems, it'd be better for that person not to become because that wife could lead, into, lead him into disaster. The devil always goes for the vulnerable to get back at the person. Now, you might say, what's it got to do with us? What's it got to do? When you've got a married couple and struggling, the devil will attack the weaker member usually and the children to stop spiritual struggle in that house. Now, I've seen sometimes it's the husband that's weak and the wife's strong. Sometimes the wife is weak and the husband is strong. Sometimes it changes where at times the husband is really strong and the wife's getting smashed and therefore he helps. But sometimes the opposite happens where he's been hit, he's going through temptations and she helps. That's the beauty of the marriage. It's for each to pick each other up in times of bad. But a lot of times I've seen marriages where, as I said, the expression dog eat dog, where it's just when that person's down, the other person goes, let's get, let's, um, let's um, get into it and start putting the booty, not physically, even though that can happen too. Oh, look, they're down. Let's, 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 um, let's, get, him, let's get them more down. It's a terrible thing. So she spat at him. She tried to hit him. I was granted such patience that I was able to hold my tongue without being disturbed. I, went, I then went to sleep, praying to God, the Most Holy Theotokos, and the Archangels to enlighten Presbytera and to continue to grant me undisturbed patience. Presbytera, I should have explained, is the, is the, is the name of... Uh, the way the Greeks call the, the wife of a priest. In Russian, it's... Where's the Russians? Matushka. In Serbian, it's... Pap, where, where's the Serbs? Papadias. Which the Greeks also use the word papadia as well. Um, Russian as well. The wife of the priest. But this is very good advice here. He prayed and asked God... The Holy Theotokos, the Most Holy Theotokos, the Archangels, which he was close to, everyone's got their saints who they're close to, to enlighten his wife and to continue to grant him undisturbed patience in this difficulty. And he also said further up, did you what he said? That he shut his mouth. The problem today is that people don't shut their mouth. It's just like going on and on and on and on. So one speaks, the other one and the other one and the other one. Just sometimes it's just better to say nothing. And a lot of times when you say nothing, the person can come to their senses and realise that they're crazy at the time and come back and say, forgive me. If both are going for it, it's going to become worse than a volcanic eruption. It's just going to destroy the whole... And the kids get disturbed with the fighting and it's like just someone's got to shut their mouth. Even if 
they are in the right, supposedly. And we don't even know, are they in the right? They might not even be in the right. I remember once a woman told me that she had a son and the son was like crazy a bit, like um, probably on drugs. And, um, and uh, he used to um, uh, um, shout and shout at her and scream at her and just for no reason sometimes, it wasn't even nothing to do. And she would say, forgive me, forgive me then, forgive me. I'm sorry for what, you know, I'm sorry for that. And straight away he would kind of calm down and realise that what he was doing was wrong. If she said back to him and started to shout, it just would have been a whole mess. In, in, that's how the monastics also teach. The, the monastics teach that when there's two people, when you see someone who's been ignited from temptation and full of beans, one can say, full of thoughts and full of uh, uh, complaints and starts to shout and scream, it's just sometimes to say, I'm sorry, forgive me, you're right. That can diffuse straight away. But when you're fighting back and speaking, speaking, the whole thing explodes. Someone's got to. Someone's got to bow down. Someone's got to, got to, be quiet. The one who's the first one will be the one that receives the greater reward and can put the fire out. You can say, "Okay, I'm sorry. Yes, you know, um, sit down. Would you like a coffee? Would you like something nice to speak? Something nice to calm the person down." But when it's just full on, the one against the other. Then there's then then there yes that's really going downhill and it could divorce. So he's, we've got beautiful advice here. So he was kept his mouth shut and prayed to God to enlighten her and to give him patience. Do we do that? No. And not only that, one one other good thing was here that he he um he never he never went and said to her, oh, by the way, I'm praying for you." So that because you've got a demon and the demons are bothering you. And, and just that makes things worse. You don't go and tell a person, it's, it's like you're putting them down in a way. Don't, don't do that. That's why the fathers say, just, just pray silently. Don't go and tell the person, I'm praying for you because you're crazy. I'm praying for you that you can see your fault because you're always in the wrong. How's that going to help? I fell asleep easily and peacefully as though I had not heard anything distressing. As a doctor injects a drug to numb a patient prior to an operation, so I too became numb to the disturbance. God gave him such, so much grace that he wasn't even disturbed with what he was feeling from his wife, what he experienced from her. This was a great miracle God performed for me, a sinner, in the morning, I went to the church of the archangels, prayed, and that was it. The turmoil was over. The war was over. The war was over. That's why I've said in the previous talks, talks, talk number 12, whom to marry and whom not to marry and things like that, I said that people, before they get married, have to have some spirituality because married life is pretty much impossible without prayer 
That's just this, like that's just as stupid as sending a soldier to go and fight without weapons. So you say, okay, young man, you want to you want to go to government? Okay, we've we've got a war in Afghanistan. You go over there and fight, but we're not going to give you any armor, no head protection, and no guns. No, we're going to give you nothing at all. You just go there and fight. What's going to happen? The person's going to come back in a body bag. So, the same thing in the marriage. People are going to marriage. I'm getting, I'm getting married. I'm going to wear a nice dress and we're going to have a party. We're going to do this. We're going to do that, and have no idea of prayer. Weak as. Have no, not really much faith. They go to the Orthodox Church. They get all these beautiful wonderful blessings and they go to their marriage and they can't pray they don't know how to pray to go through the problems and then they wonder why they divorce now they divorce before a year i heard a story of a of a couple that got married and um they went on a honeymoon it was all fantastic came back home and then that well the woman came to a realization that there was all these clothes everywhere that had to be washed. But mummy wasn't there. Her mother wasn't there. So she packed up her gag bags and said, I'm going back to mum because I need her to clean my clothes and to, to, to do things for me. And it's the same thing as the, as the guy. It's, 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 it's the same problem there as well. The guy's worthless, can't do anything, has no skills, not even any... Like, let's not even go to the spiritual level. Let's even go onto the human level that they've got no skills in, in finances, no skills in, in, in uh, even communication skills. Just worldly things, one can say, but are necessary for a marriage. Can't do anything. It's like some people, one, one woman told me, she goes, it's like I'm in a, I'm in a uh, concentration camp and they're using Chinese water torture. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, the tap, tick, 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 tick. He won't fix it. And he knows how to fix it because he's a plumber. <laughs> so it's like they've been tortured by, 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 um, by yeah, ancient Chinese techniques where they tie you down and the water just drips on your head. So that's women's, it's like, it's like, bump, 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 going crazy. So the, that's not really... No. And then forget about the, the, um, the prayer part of it. In, now we go on. In 1972, my youngest daughter, Chrysula, decided to become a nun. This came about by God's providence. I was overjoyed but knew I would face many obstacles from Presbytera. Indeed, she caused me to endure such sufferings. So the wife, his wife, was against the daughter or daughters becoming nuns. She wanted her to get married. But the priest, being very spiritual, said, what a great blessing it would be for my daughter to become a nun. So the problems began. Indeed, she caused me to endure much suffering a level of agony surpassing what I experienced during the civil war with the communist guerrillas. That's harsh words. He suffered more, and you know, you don't know, but if you read the book, he was 
um, he was starving, he had to hide in the mountains, they were after him, he was sentenced so many times to death and was escaped or was spared by miracle. He, he suffered with the uh, communists, just all the time on the run. And yet he, may, he said the word of that, um, those words, I suffered more than what I did with the communist guerrillas. Can you see why a lot of people just say divorce is the, is, 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 is the easy way out? On the day Chrysula was set to go to the convent, she came to me in secret to receive my blessing. She had told Presbyterian that she was going to Athens for a few days for some medical examinations. Had I told Presbyterian when Chrysula was actually where she was going on that occasion, only God knows what would have happened. She would have, in other words, blown a stack. This situation needed to be handled with brains and not with pain. He didn't, he didn't want to go through pain. He didn't want to have fights and things like that. He just said, God, you have to use our brain. I've read the lives of saints and know of many examples where similar actions were taken. St. John, the hut dweller, for example, left home secretly, as did St. Alexius, the man of God, along with many others that didn't get their, the blessing of their parents to become monastics. Sometimes they got the blessing of one, sometimes they got the blessing of none. There's examples. But there's others who wouldn't leave unless they got the blessing. It's all, you know, it's up to each person. What else could I do? Or it's how each person's guided, one can say. One Saturday afternoon, Presbytera was annoying me greatly, nagging me about Chrysula's departure and blaming it on me. Indeed, I was to blame because I knew that it was the will of God for Chrysula to dedicate her life to God, and I desired it as well. I told Presbyterra that she should feel rewarded and delighted that we were made worthy to offer the gift of our own daughter to God and the Most Holy Theotokos, but she would not listen. I kept silent. This is very good advice. Silence, prayer, patience. In the evening, I went to serve Vespers and as usual, passed in front of the Church of the Archangels on my way back. Since I did not know what mood Presbyterra would be in at home, I decided to put on the stole, that's the priests, the Petrohili, as we say, um, I decided to, and pray the supplication prayer to the Archangels, like we did today, the, the, the Paraclesis, the Maleban to the Mother of God, he did one to the Archangels because he was scared to go home. I entreated them to strike down Satan, he who troubles Presbytera and me through her. And so he, and this is what the saints say, when someone's against us, don't say that the person is against us, but say that it's the demons behind who are causing the problem. Don't blame the person. St. Nicholas said that too. I think it was in the prologue a few days ago, was it yesterday, too, where he said that, you know, when someone's an atheist or when someone's China, it's always the devil behind them. And he says here, um, to strike down Satan, he who troubles Presbytera and troubles me through her. And a great wonder. When I returned home, Presbytera came over and asked forgiveness 
of me for all the things she had said that evening. See the importance of prayer? See, people go to Relationships Australia. People go to marriage counselling. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it, they've got some use. Well, I, I sometimes say to people, well, you're not listening to me, you're not listening to the church, then go to a psychiatrist, go to a, go to a, a psychologist, do, you know, whatever. And they go, and sometimes it helps them to kind of come to a realisation we've got problems. Because sometimes people just don't come to terms and say, we have a marital problem. And some, sometimes they get good advice, sometimes they don't get much advice. It depends. But the marriage council is not going to tell you about prayer. The marriage council is not going to tell you about God. I remember reading Father John Christiankin, whose, whose photograph I have there, the Russian elder, and he said that he wrote a letter to someone and said, because your, whatever it was, some relative, because they don't listen to the church, then let them go to a psychiatrist. It doesn't mean that a Christian can't go to a psychiatrist because sometimes the problems that people have could be a physiological it's medical. But a lot of times, mental illness just comes from one thing. It's called E. No, yes, ego. Some of you might thought it was a vitamin E deficiency. It's <laughs> ego. That's it. Simple as that. See here? Remain silent. That's humility. Prayed for his wife. That's humility. Ask God to endure. That's humility. Humility gives grace and helps the marriage to continue on. Now, some of you might say, but he's a priest. Well, some, uh, you're not priests, but he's a priest. He could do that. Well, that's, that's silly itself because you can go to the priest. You go to the priest and say, I want him 11. Can you please commemorate? Here's $5. Here's, please commemorate. Please commemorate for my, for, for, for my marriage. People ring up and say, I've got marital problems. And they I go, well, where did that come from? I've known you for five years. I've known you for 10 years. You've never even mentioned that. Oh, it's been going on for years. Well, why do, what, what are we doing here? We do services every day. What's the... What, what's the um, all of a sudden, they ring up to say, oh, the marriage is over, I'm going to divorce. But that's not one, it's a lot of people do that. But why haven't you telephoned? Why haven't you asked for prayers? Why don't you go to your parish priest and ask for a malebin? Have you got on your knees at all? No. Have you, have you prayed to God for your marriage? I didn't even think of that. All I know is that I can't live with, the, with her, or I can't live with him or whatever. But that's beautiful that. See, she came and she asked forgiveness. And he would never have got that without prayer. There's an example from the, from the lives of saints, from the writings of the fathers, that there was two monks in a monastery. They couldn't stand each other. They were fighting. And... One of them went to the spiritual father and said, 
No, um, we're fighting. And he said, have you asked forgiveness? He goes, yes, I asked forgiveness, but he doesn't want to accept it. He goes, but when you, when, you, when you went to ask forgiveness, what was in your heart? He goes, that I was right, but I just said, forgive me. And he goes, no, that's not right. Don't go to the person to ask forgiveness while condemning them in your heart. So I married. So let's, let's apply it now to the husband and wife. Husband's in the wrong, wife's in the wrong, who knows? Let's just say the husband believes he's in the right and he says, oh, well, I remember that talk. I'm going to go and ask forgiveness. So he goes to his wife and says, forgive me, which within himself, within himself. So how, how is that going to cause any problem? How is that going to um, do thing? Or he, she might come up. I remember the talk that Father Cosmos done. That's right. He says, "Go and ask forgiveness." I'm going to go and speak. To, I'm going to go and um, I'm going to go and ask my husband for for forgiveness, right? So he goes up and asks forgiveness within her mind. Dog, how's that going to help? <laughs> and then the woman even complains and says, "He rejected me." Or the husband says, "But I went and asked forgiveness," and she said, "Get away from me! I don't even want to see you. You make me sick." Now, let's see what the elder gave advice. That's what the, how the elder gave advice to the monk. He says, no, you go and ask forgiveness condemning yourself. Condemn yourself. So, off he goes to the monk's room, to the monk's cell. And he was approaching the, the door. Of course, the monk inside didn't know he was there. And just as he was about to knock on the door, the door opened up and the monk came out and hugged him and said, forgive me as well. That came from the fact that he, and I've seen that in practice. I've seen that in practice. Where we can, we can have an argument with someone and then we say, I'm at wrong, I'm, I'm wrong, I shouldn't have, I mean, I, you can blame yourself. And as you're going to say sorry to the other person, the person of themselves comes and says, forgive me, forgive me. That's what we learn. Yet later, the next week, Presbyterra pestered me again about Chrysula's issue for two full hours. I was reading the lives of saints and pretended not to hear anything. The whole time I was praying to the Most Holy Theotokos, entreating her to provide enlightenment to Presbyteria, patience to me, and strength to Chrysula. What else should I do? I've already been to the Church of the Archangels for a supplication prayer. So he already prayed as another occasion. I also had to celebrate liturgy the next morning. So he didn't want to have a fight with her, knowing that he wanted to serve liturgy the next morning. As a heated, at, at, at a heated point in the discussion, someone knocked on the door while she was going on. It was the village doctor accompanied by the nurse and the midwife. They'd come to see me. They asked Previtera what was wrong with her. She replied that she was sad about her daughter, Chrysula, having gone to the monastery. The three of them then started encouraging Presbytera, saying that such heartening things as you must be glad and proud that you have a 
offered a gift to the Most Holy Theotokos. They stayed for two hours, calming Presbyterra down completely. I realised that it was God's will for this to happen, especially for my soul to be relieved, because that night Satan struggled exceedingly hard to swallow me up through Presbyterra. But the grace of God struck him down through those three people. What, is she, what does he mean by that? That Satan tried hard to swallow him up. Swallow him up means that to, uh, to do something bad, maybe hit up, to uh, um, run away, to fall into some sin, anything that could, that he felt that there was so much pressure on him. But through his prayers, that God relieved the problem. A few months later, on November 23rd, 1972, the village doctor nurse, the, the village doctor, the nurse, the midwife, and I went with Presbyterio to see Chrysula, who had now become a nun with the name Isadora at her convent. Presbyterio was very glad to see her daughter as a nun. I don't know if she had seen her before, perhaps that was the first time after she left, I'm not sure. Now, at last, after all the trouble she had given me for so many years, first with the guerrillas, meaning that how, he wanted, how she wanted him to become communist, and then with Chrysula, she had come to realise the real worth of the church. Many parishioners who visited the convent also remarked how happy Presbyterra was. She is very content. She is very content and fulfilled now. Whatever I suffered from her actually did me good. She worked to give me a crown so that I might also expect some wages from God. So at the end of all that, suffering for so many years, she changed. She became an active member of the church even though she was a priest's wife. The suffering that he went through it said that he was given a crown of martyrdom because he, he suffered and all came out for the best, for the salvation of them both and their family. So, I don't know, I think the story speaks for itself, does it not? I think it's, a, it's an echo. Now, some of you might be divorced. I don't know the background of people much. Some of you might say, if I knew this, maybe I wouldn't have lost my marriage. The thing is now is to acknowledge that divorce is bad, as we, as we heard in the last talk, that divorce is, is not good. Repent. If you can reconcile, reconcile. If you can't, then ask God for forgiveness and continue on with life. We, that was all in the last talk. Any questions on that? If someone might want to say a comment? The new people? I've got a question. You know when you said that um, she, was she was badgering him while he was reading the lives of saints um, and he didn't say anything, could that be interpreted as he was just ignoring her and made her worse? Because... Like if you take that into a situation now and say a wife's um, doing that to the husband and the husband's just reading and that, by it's, him not answering... Could it's not good to aggravate 
but he's a priest and that's his duty. For example, she was aggravated that he served liturgies. What does he do? Stop liturgies. But there are in, 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 with lay people, there are certain things that, you know, like for example, if you're married, which we're going to see later on, and your spouse is not very religious, and when they see you doing prayers, it aggravates them, well, uh, why do it in front of them? And as this Father John Christiankin said in a, in a previous talk, he says you can always pray within. Why do you have to be external? Um, in this case, that, that was his duty, that, that he was a priest, and he couldn't stop his duty. But in the, in the, in, in, with people, there are certain things that you can compromise with and there are certain things that you don't. And um, the main thing is, even though he might have appeared to be ignoring her, he was praying. And ignoring with disdain is different to ignoring with prayer. So, for example, if Gregory here, for example, is talking to me and I'm ignoring him and I've got disdain and saying, um, what does he want? Or, or like that within me, even I'm not showing it, then that he, can, he might feel that. The, my negative thoughts can make him worse. But if I'm ignoring him because he's carrying on and then I'm, being, I'm praying within myself, I have love for him, I feel sorry for him, I don't want to make things worse, I try to say things but he doesn't stop, then that's a different situation. Then that's, uh, I'm not really ignoring him with disdain, but I'm ignoring him because words don't help anymore. Sorry about that because I'm just saying, um, you in the front. That's why I just picture like that. Uh, so that's, that's, the, that's, the, um, that's the difference. Ignoring with disdain, like the person who wouldn't ask forgiveness, you know, like the woman when I'm asked the husband forgiveness, but in her heart she was full of poison. And then she, then she goes, oh, he never even accepted my forgiveness. So those type of things. Contemplating divorce is the next section. Now we're going to come to the section of contemplating divorce. Now some of you might say, I'm happily married and I don't have those thoughts. Well, it doesn't matter. They can come. Good to know. Someone might go and learn self-defence because they don't want to be mugged in the street. They might not have been mugged. It doesn't mean they're not going to learn, just in case. So it's the same here. Just in case. Learn. You might be able to help someone else. That's contemplating divorce. You'd be surprised. These temptations can come, especially when things don't go right. Like uh, I've seen examples where, you see it all the time in the news as well, where um, some, uh, like a couple... Uh, might give they might have a baby which has got some um, disability, and the pressure of bringing up that child with a disability makes them to divorce. They weren't strong. They, they divorced. Like the the Chamberlain lady that that whose daughter was killed by the, the by the by the dingoes in Northern Territory or whatever. They divorced because of the, it was such much a lot of pressure that they went through. So this comes from the life of Saint Seraphim of Viritsa. Is that his saint? Viritsa? Viritsa? Yes. The Russian saint. He was born in 1866 
and he was at first married and then both he and his wife agreed to separate to become monastics. He went to a monastery and in 1921 he became a priest. This was under communism. In 1927 he became a great scheme and a spiritual father of the monastery. And um, in 1933 he was exiled by the communists to the little city of um, Viritsa, whatever. During this, his time in exile he became a guide to many people. He was granted by God the gift of healing and clairvoyance. He passed away in 1949. That's this book here. So it's his life, miracles and prophecies. Of, uh, that's by Orthodox Kipseli Publications. New Saint of the, Orthodox, of the Orthodox Russian Church. Yep. Life, miracles, prophecies of Saint Seraphim of Viritsa. That's the right way of saying it. To the people whose marriage had a blessing from the church, those who were married in the church, the elder would say that they that in no case should they dissolve it. They shouldn't dissolve their marriage, no matter how many problems there existed in their family life. That was his advice. Don't dissolve the marriage. Now let's, let's read on, because we know that from the last talk that there are sometimes situations which are really bad. In 1946, a woman visited Father Seraphim to tell him her pain. Her husband began drinking and she wanted to divorce him. And he said, how will you separate? You are crowned before God. Wait a bit, your husband will become good. Now that's important. Wait a bit. Wait. Don't jump. There's still a chance, like I said at the beginning of the talk. These words of the elder she understood later when in 1951 her husband died. Before taking his last breath, he said to his relatives, be good and compassionate with everyone. Now, when I first read that, I go, what does that mean? Be good and compassionate with everyone. So obviously, he, he was dying. And I think that what he was trying to say is that his wife's goodness and compassion softened him to, so, and she didn't leave him that helped him to change his life and at the end, he, whatever, he got sick and he died. But he died in a peaceful state, reconciled to God, to his wife, etc. And, and remember that she first went to him um, in 1946. He died 1951, five years. Now, the is not in full. The main thing is that he said to her, do not divorce. Now, Father John Christiankin, as I said, the photograph is there, in one of his letters, he says to someone, as a family, you need to preserve a wise and patient relationship with your husband. It is easy to say, I'll get divorce. You can say it when you're thinking only about yourself. But if you think about your husband and children, then you'll exert all efforts to ensure that your children will know their father and your husband his family. May God give you wisdom. Now, this is good. Divorce is not an individual thing. It's not like a... Because people today are very selfish, they go, I'm going to get divorced. That's what I want. That's for me. They don't care that the divorce also affects their spouse and their children. It affects their spouse and their children. One cannot think that a decision to divorce is totally independent of those around them. 
And we know, of course, the effect that divorce has on children. And I know the effect that it has even on the spouses that are left sometimes, that they actually um, crumble. It's not a personal thing. That's selfish to think that. I can't take it, I'm going to leave. How about your children? How about your spouse as well? Next letter. You have lived with your spouse for 20 years now and your life together had its joys and sorrows. Now you're in sorrows. But how can you think about running away from sorrows when at the wedding ceremony the couple drinks the cup of life's joys and sorrows to the bottom of the cup? You should not think this way. As you know, we said this in the first talk, when a, when, a, when, a, when a couple gets married in an Orthodox church, they drink the common cup. It used to be Holy Communion. But anyway, now they, they have the common cup of the wine. And that symbolises that marriage life, married life will be uh, full of uh, sorrows and joys. And as Elder Emilianos said from Mount Althos, Simon Petra Monastery, mostly sorrows. More sorrows, less joys. That's what married life's about. Now, this part here, I was actually going to delete. Sometimes I delete some things which might not be necessary for, this, for, for the lesson that we're doing today. And I was going to delete it. And then someone told me, no, that's, he told me, I just didn't, I missed the whole point. He said, a surgical operation is always the last means of treatment of a serious illness. So I thought, okay, she must have written to him about a, an operation. And he says, don't go, that's always the last resort. Don't, you know, got to always look, there might be, don't run to operations, unless it's absolutely necessary. He says, that's always the last resort. So I said, okay, this has got to do with illness, something to do with, I don't know, I'll get rid of that. And then the person that was helping me type out, and he goes, no, that doesn't mean that. I said, what does it mean? He said, it means that when, a, a, when you are doing a surgical operation, it's the last resort. So, for example, if someone's leg has, has um, is got problems and it might have to be amputated, that's the last resort. You try, obviously, to save the leg. And what he was saying, which I missed the point, was that you don't cut off the part of you because when a husband and wife are married, they become one. And by divorcing, it's like you're cutting part of yourself off. But that's the last resort. Don't do that. So he was like using an analogy of operation and I missed the point altogether, which was good that the person that was typing actually helped me to... Um, I didn't realise it. But you have not made an effort to help your suffering husband. So your husband's suffering, he's got problems, you want to cut him off, but what would you do that for? If your, if your leg was, um, had some problems, would you cut it off straight away? No, you try and save it. So that's the same as husband and wife. They're one, they're one flesh. You need to pray for him to ask God and all the saints to help him. Again, the same theme, this thing about prayer. See the importance of prayer? At the end of the lesson, at the end of the talk, you'll actually understand that prayer is the most important of them all. And people today don't know how to pray. He, he advised her and said, read 
you need to pray for him, to ask God and all the saints to help him. Read the Akathis to the Mother of God, the inexhaustible cup, which is this one here. Akathis to the Mother of God, the inexhaustible cup. And they say in the introduction, this is a, a very good Akathist for people that have got alcoholic problems or addiction problems. And um, I had a woman who uh, I was hoping a little bit and her husband was alcoholic and um, terrible, terrible. Drinking, aggressive. She was like being tortured and um, she wanted to leave him. And I said, I don't agree. Because there's no point, it's no, he's never going to change, all the same blasphemies. And I said, no, how do you know he's not going to change? Because that's been going on for years. On and off, on and off, he, then he does it and then he just sits there and disconnects or gets aggressive and, and things like that. And um, I said, so how many prayers have you done for him? She goes, nothing. I said, so you want to divorce him and you haven't even done one prayer? Now, is that the pinnacle of stupidity? And and he had mental issues too. But he's dangerous. He's hit me. Hits the children. Okay, that's that's now that's serious. So, what do you think I would have said to her? To to um to um tolerate it. No. Because that that that's dangerous. Kill the woman, kill the children, anything can happen. I said, well we'll do what St. Paul says. Sometimes it's necessary to separate. Tell him, I don't want a divorce. You need to get help. Got alcoholics anonymous, whatever, go to church, get prayers. You need to get help. And then he said, oh, you want a divorce? I said, no. Then he goes, oh, I want a divorce. I goes, well, that's your business. I don't believe in divorce. I want you to get better. But you can't be here smashing the house up and putting us in danger. So she turfed him out. And... Kept on saying divorce, divorce, divorce. I said, look, don't say that to me. I don't like it. If you're going to say, if you're going to continue to say that word to me, then you need to go to another priest. You're going to stop saying that word. Has he gone with another woman? Goes no. Well, what's going on here? The Bible says the man's sick. He's got problems. And I, and I said this, this, this is dependent on you. Anyway, so she did the um, akathis to the the inexhaustible cup. And um, lo and behold, after some time, he said to her, I need help. I'm going to go to a doctor to take some medication for the alcohol. I'm going to go to a psychiatrist, etc. Find out that he had bipolar and who knows what else. So all these things happened. Everything started to improve after she read the Akathist to the mother of God, the inexhaustible cup, prayer. 
Sometimes women say to me or men say to me, oh, I can't pray for my wife or husband. And I said, well, that means you've got no love at all because it looks like I don't. Well, then still do it. Force yourself and God will see your intention and he will help the situation. And that situation improved. But when people come and say, I want a divorce. I, don't know. I can't do this. I can't do that. What prayers have you done? Nothing. How many malevolence have you done? Nothing. How many commemorations? Have you put your name in the monastery? No. This has been going on for years. I've had a lot of experience with these, these with things. That's wrong. Don't cut your husband off. You need to pray for him and pray to the Holy Martyr Boniface, which is the patron saint of um, people that are drunk, that have got alcohol problems. And patiently carry your cross. Mainly look over your heart's intentions. Two spouses are one flesh, says the saint, says the Holy Father there. If one suffers, the other most certainly hurts as well. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. By your patience, possess your souls. It's easy to run from your cross, but then salvation is quite questionable. When you throw away your cross, it's as if you're saying to God, okay, this is my cross, this is what I've got for my salvation, I throw it away, and by throwing it away, it's as if you're saying, I don't want to be saved. Now, different, it might, you know, you might do prayers and supplications and for years and years, but the person's dangerous. There's all these different things. It might turn out to divorce, but not before there's been effort and work being done. Okay, we'll have a, have a ten minute break, get the sandwiches and things. We come now to the, on the way up to the section contemplating divorce. We're up to letter number four. This letter again is from Father John Christiankin, which as I uh, mentioned he died, I think, in 2007, passed away, and he was an elder of the monastery of? Pskov, Pskov, Caves Monastery, and he became a spiritual father to many in Russia. He lived during communism, and he, was helped, he helped a lot of, he helped people who were coming out of communism after when communism dropped, fell, then people were in a mess spiritually. So he was helping those who were, for example, married by the state but not married in the church. And all those type of situations, which today it's very similar, uh, even though we haven't got communism here, uh, but nevertheless people, even if they do get married in the church, have no idea what the church is. So in a way we can apply some of it. He says, your thoughts of leaving your family are not godly, especially a family that has run spiritually out of control where everyone lives as he pleases and believes in their own way but not onto salvation. So this woman, I think, Uh, I think it's a woman, anyway. Uh, she wanted to r leave her family. She had a, hu a husband and children, that's right, sorry, yep. And that family was not a spiritual family. 
they were, uh, as he said, he had a control, doing what they want, living as they want, thinking as they want, and she wanted to leave her family. But he said, your thoughts are not godly and they're not onto salvation. Now the Lord has entered the household through one member. Nowadays, more often than not, this comes through the children and the person has to bear struggles and sorrows onto the salvation of his close ones. So this is important. What he's, what he's saying here is that we have a family, which happens here as well, where the family is, uh, even if they're orthodox, no one really is church-minded, far away from the church. Suddenly, one person comes to God, changes. It could be the husband, it could be the wife, and he's saying most of the time it's the children, one of the children that, that becomes religious. That person in that family of all these unbelievers or whatever has to bear a struggle and sorrows for the salvation of the rest of the family. In other words, it's as if God has put the responsibility on that person to save the rest of the family. And what Saint Father John is saying here is that you want to leave your family, which is going to be a destruction, not only for you, but for your whole family. God enlightened you, God has helped you, now you need to help the rest of your family. Much patience is needed and even more love. So I desire that you live at home, labour for your family on the farm, help in the church when possible and pray for your spouse and children. The Lord will give you the wisdom to live so that they too will come to know the joy of life in God. Now, remember in the last talk, I think, that we say that when someone changes, like could be a, could be two people that are married outside the church or even maybe in church, but they weren't any, in any way religious. Suddenly one person changes. Say the wife changes. It's her responsibility now to bring the husband to the church with love, with patience, with prayer, with endurance, knowing that she has the responsibility for, the, for her spouse and maybe even her children. When a person wants to leave that, it's as if they're saying, I don't give a stuff, as they say in Australia, that I, I don't care about the rest of my family, all I care about is me. That famous me, me, me spirit. Always selfish when you see two people divorcing and at each other's throats. And, 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 and you say, for the sake of the children, I mean, all, even if you are going to divorce, don't do what you're doing, but it's like they, have, they want to get revenge on each other and they fight and they this and that, and they don't care about the children. All they care about is for, their, for they... For them to get back at the spouse, to have revenge. Anyway, that's another thing. But the point is that we have to be careful how we change in a family. 
When the change is abrupt, it's dangerous because then the person, so we have a, a couple and they're pretty all right together. Then suddenly one of them changes, as we said, and then the husband, say it's the husband that hasn't changed, sees the wife not as she was before, but completely different, like abrupt change. We, we, we said that in the last talk. But also a lack of love, harsh, judgmental, always being sarcastic, always putting him down. Why aren't you a believer? Why don't you go to church? You don't fast. You're a pagan. You've got a devil in you or whatever. And what, how can that man be attracted to that? But when you, what I say to people is, okay, why don't you do something, something which is going to show the, that your change is benefit to him? How? By not speaking back, by being nice, by being loving, by doing your duties, by being polite, respectful. So this person can say, wow, this is, a, this is good, this is to my benefit. Before we were not bad, but she never treated me like that. This religion, this must be really good because I'm getting benefit from it. Like I said last week about those two, two people that were Protestants, one became Orthodox, the other one remained. And he was fasting, so that all that was left was skin and bones. So the wife was horrified. What kind of religion is that? He wouldn't speak because he read in the books you've got to be silent. He'd be reading, he'll be reading continually. He'd be praying continually. They wouldn't have any conversation How is that going to attract that woman to the faith? I said to him, for example, I, saw, I even said to him, um, firstly, you're excessively fasting, and in the beginning, I would not even keep the fasts properly. Because, oh, but the Orthodox Church, yes, but... It's better to do a compromise for the sake of your marriage. It's not, you know, like the, the bishop who, during the time of Turkish occupation in Greece, the, uh, the, 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 um, the Pasha, whatever you call him, the, 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 um, the Turkish man there, the, the one that was ahead, he was going to execute a number of Greek Orthodox for something. And the bishop went to him to beg him not to do that. And it was, uh, it was Good Friday. He, well, he came at a time when the Pasha was about to have his meal. And the Pasha said to him, come, sit down with me, eat with me. It was lamb. And he said, I'm sorry, you know, your excellency, whatever, they, you know, uh, but today is Good Friday. I don't eat meat. 
and he's rather I'm fasting, and he says, "Eat with me, don't offend me." And they live. If you don't, I will kill them. And he sat down and he ate the meat, the meal. Now, some of you might say, oh, no, can't compromise, can't compromise. Sometimes we have to compromise. We don't compromise, on, on, as we'll notice in the next talk, there are certain things that if a husband or wife demands in the sexual area, unnatural things, the person has to say no. If the, We'll read about all that later on. We have to show like the Christians in the first centuries who were persecuted by the pagans, the pagans would torture and persecute the Christians. There were times when there were plagues, when there was disease spread through the city or the area, and people were dying. And the Christians would go to the pagans and nurse them and help them. And the pagans would, were saying to themselves, but what are you doing? We, we, we hated you, we persecuted you, we tortured you. And now you're coming and you're helping us. And they were so moved by that that many of them converted to Christianity because they saw that it's a religion of love. The Jehovah's or the others that come to our doors with their smiles and they're being nice. They're being nice because they want to convert us, not because they really like us. They want that their aim is conversion. A wife should not be nice to her husband because she wants to convert him. Or a husband shouldn't be nice to the wife to convert him. She is being nice, she's showing love because her religion, her faith, um, is love. So it comes out naturally. That is false when we actually say, I'm going to show love to Maria here, I'm going to be nice to her because, so I should say, she's not orthodox, I don't want to convert her. Then to me, it's like a, I'm like a Jehovah Witness or the guys on the bikes. Right? That's not, um, that's not, that's not love. That's, in Greek we say ponyro, in, Greek, in English it's uh, sly. So the Christians, when they're helping the, the, the pagans and feeding them and helping them, not because to convert them, but because they had love, felt sorry, compassion. That's sterile. It's like clinical. And it's the same as I'm going to be nice to my husband to make him orthodox. Like a, like a computer. So, Elder, Elder Father John here is saying that um, show love and bring your family to God. The next one Next letter, that you have not divorced your lawful husband, blessed by God, shows that your Christian conscience is still alive and it does not allow you to commit spiritual murder on your sick husband. See the way he thinks? The elder who has the spirit of God looks at it as being 
when someone leaves their spouse, it's equivalent to like spiritual murder. Because a lot of times those, like that woman I said before, she's lost. She, she separated. She lost herself. But what effect could that have on her, on her husband? What if one spouse is suffering with an incurable sickness and requires difficult care? Should, should he be taken to the cemetery before he dies? I think this woman's husband was sick and she wanted to run away. After all, you are sacramentally wedded, in other words, married in the church, and your husband is making efforts to struggle against his emotional illness. So he had some mental issues. His condition is furthermore a result of the enemy's revenge. So not only does he have mental problems, but he's also being attacked by the demons. Revenge, I don't know what the revenge is. Did he maybe try to come to the church and then he was attacked? I don't know. Um, you think about divorce, but he will perish after you abandon him and your soul will not be at peace for the rest of your days. Like that woman I told you in the last talk where her husband lost his mind and then they were sent him to Greece and my father, I remember saying to them, you shouldn't do that. She had a couple of children and she, they bundled him up because he lost, his, he lost, he's lost himself. As I said, he was running in the streets, no clothes, jumped on the cars, went, went crazy. And, um, and then uh, my, I remember my father saying that you shouldn't do that and they were saying, no, we're going you know, to do it. They got rid of him, sent him to Greece. The children would always wonder, 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 bothered them. And, you know, I've noticed when I speak to people when they get older, they have hate for the person who left their spouse. So if the woman left the, the husband, the children a lot of times have hate and said, it's because of you that you aren't married. You left Anyway, these children were very upset and things like grow up, grow up. And she was just left a bitter, uh, sexually frustrated person, I would say. With no husband. He went to Greece and he got married. And then the children wanted to go and visit him. And they went and visited him and found him to be quite normal with a family, etc. Now that would make them even worse against their, that would make them to be against their mother even worse. So, people who instigate these things, a lot of times they, they might feel that they're going to have a better marriage or a better this, but sometimes uh, what happens a lot of times is that they don't remain at peace and, and until the rest of the days. There, of course, there are circumstances where some marriages were completely out of it. We'll discuss that last time, and we'll see more about it as time goes on. Christianity is a podvig of life. Podvig is a Russian word. Podvig means it's, like a, it's a struggle. It is cross-bearing. In other words, Christianity is, when, is someone carrying their cross. It's a labour. It's a struggle. But nowadays, the elder says, Christianity is for many just something on the, on the tip of their tongue. As long as the sky is blue, like I said at the beginning of the talk, as long as everything's nice, go to church, listen to the nice singing, oh, so uplifting that singing. And the icons are so beautiful. 
The service was nice, the vestments of the priest, all nice. He used especially nice incense today. And all these externals, everything's nice, nice, nice. And, but as soon as something goes wrong, then all of a sudden the Christianity is bad. So that's what he's saying. People speak about being Christian, but in, uh, only when everything's going all right. You need to pray patiently and even more patiently bear the burden of the illness, of his illness, the illness of your husband. You two are one flesh. When the husband is sick, the wife suffers. May God give you wisdom and strength. That's the end of the section to do with contemplating divorce. Now we're going to come to the next section, which is when people have actually separated. Father John again, Father John Christianka, that's why I picked a lot of it. I went through his book, found a lot of letters to do with marriage and from other books, etc. as well, and do it together. Why do I do that? Why do I... And I'll do it basically for all my talks. I do find writings of the saints, but I especially, will, I especially go to the elders who are close to our times. Why? He lived in our times. He knows the problems that existed. Elder Paisios lived in our times. Elder Porfirios lived in our times. Elder Favelos of Serbia lived in our times. Elder, um, Elder, uh, some other one I forgot now. Fa who? Father Seraphim, he was, he lived in our times and, and he had the gift of discernment and he was able to apply things for us that live in these days. About computers, a lot of the ancient fathers had no idea. They, never, they, didn't, they don't speak about computers. They don't speak about um, IVF. They don't speak about the, the way that it's anti... A lot of these things is, 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 um, was not... Uh, not around in their time. And Father and father of Romania, Cleopa of Romania, all these elders, I like to go, ruffle through their books, look for things which will help us to understand the spirit of the time and put into the proper spirit advice. As you'll see later on, I'm going to talk about mixed marriages when someone's married to a, a, a heterodox within the church. And that's actually forbidden by the canons. However, they do it. What, what am I going to say about it? Well, when I come to it, I'm not going to really say much. Because why? Because I want to find what do the elders, what do the spirit-bearing elders talk about? How do they look at the fact that the church are marrying these people when really the canons forbid it? I don't know. So I want to look and see, I want to find what they say. And, to, to, and I haven't found anything yet. So because I haven't found anything yet, I'm not going to say. Because I, I will make a mistake. I might say, no, it shouldn't, I don't know. I'll leave it, I'll leave it, I'll leave it until I find the source. It, it, it will come. Father, Father John writes the following. One thing is for sure. You can in no way start a new family as long as your child's father is still alive. This would not be godly. Therefore, only the following remains for you to do. Either rejoin with your husband or remain alone. There are no 
other options for you. He was strict on that matter. Why he was strict? Of course, there are second marriages. Why he was strict with that person? Um, possibly because she left. She didn't try. Uh, the, the husband had not committed adultery, like we read before. There was no real reason to leave. and well, Therefore, it says in the canons... Remember the canon I read to you last week? That if someone divorces... The, the one who is innocent, the innocent party, can remarry, not the one that's guilty. So, for example, you've got a couple, and if one of them commits adultery, leaves, accept, whatever, the marriage is broken up, the one who's at fault, strictly speaking, is not allowed to marry. It's the one that's innocent is allowed to marry. Even though they do it. And as I, as I told you last week, last month, that a priest in Greece told me that it's so atrocious now what's happening. Um, a man might commit adultery with a woman, runs away from his family. There's nothing wrong with the wife. Just um, he felt like he wanted to be with someone else. Runs away, gets, and the church marries him in the church. Number two, begin by trying to restore your family. After all, you shall be answerable for your son and your wife. So here's another example of a, a husband who left his family. And, and Father John is saying, you've got to go and fix up the problem because you will give answer for leaving your wife and your son. Your marriage broke up not without your own guilt. You should have prayed out your wife and educated her in the faith but you had neither the mind nor desire to preserve your family. Now that, uh, uh, that expression, pray out, I've only read it in Russian books. Pray out your wife, pray out, your, pray out that person. And I like that expression. Pray out means that, a per what I said before, like Father Dimitri where he prayed out his wife. His wife was uh, antagonistic against the church. She was negative against him being a priest. She was negative against her, the, the, the daughter becoming a nun. She was negative against everything that was religious, basically. And yet he prayed her out, meaning that through his prayer, continual prayer and patience and endurance, he brought her to the faith. That's what it means. So what happens, I think, here is that... Let me just read on because I want to make sure... Uh, you, have, you had neither the mind nor desire to preserve your family. You didn't make an attempt to keep your family of pre preventive divorcing. You didn't even desire it, but you just left. Growing up without a father is a tragedy for your son. Thus, D.K., it is good to labour in, in the monasteries. However, for you... This is according to human reasoning. No, I've got it. But according to God, you need to live at home and do any, anything you can to bring back your wife and son. So this fruit loop, what he wanted to do was that under the guise that, oh, my wife's an unbeliever. She doesn't believe. I have the right to leave. He wanted to leave to go to a monastery. 
wanted to go to a monastery. And he's saying, what are you doing? How is that going to be favorable? How will God look at that? You should have prayed out. Yes, your wife didn't believe, but she was willing to live with you. And you, you, could, you, you should have stayed there. You should have prayed for her. You should have endured to bring her to the faith and to save her and your family. But no, you had no desire to do that. And instead, you want to you run to the monastery. He goes, you've got to go back. The next letter, what can I say to you? Faith is the creation of life which, with lots of patience and love. When faith becomes an excuse for ruin, there is obviously something wrong. Most likely it is self-will and God's aid withdraws. You have come to the faith, but your husband has not. Again, it's the same thing as an excuse because her husband was not in the church. She says, I've got an excuse. I can leave. The same as two Orthodox people. Say two Orthodox people, they're married in the church, have no idea what it's all about. Later on, one of them changes and then the woman says, oh, he's, um, or the opposite, he's, he doesn't even believe, doesn't even go to church. Yes, he's orthodox, he's like a pagan, he's an unbeliever. I'm going to leave him because he's not a believer under the guise that I'm doing something good that God's going to like because I don't want to stay with him because he doesn't believe. You were ready with extraordinary ease to cut off half of yourself at a word from an uninvolved person. What does that mean? After all, husband and wife are one flesh. He's, she's, he's saying, how can you want to leave your husband when he hasn't even committed adultery, which is the number one condition for divorce, as we read last, week, last month? He hasn't even committed adultery, hasn't gone with another woman, and yet you want to divorce him. How can you divorce him when you and your husband are one flesh? You have not thought about him or about the children. The selfishness again. Selfishness, the selfishness is the most, it's, it's the worst disease today in society. It's this selfishness. Because we are brought up selfish. A lot of us are brought up Selfish, especially if we lived in the Western society and uh, like uh, the TV and, and all, the, all these um, videos and DVDs now and computers and, and people are becoming so selfish. And when I speak to married couples, it's always the same thing, whether it's the wife saying, I can't believe how selfish she is. And then another couple, the, the husband will say, I can't believe how selfish she is. doesn't care about the children. All she cares about is herself. Or he doesn't care about anything. All he cares about is to be on the internet or to whatever. It's always to do with that selfishness. That, that is, that's worse than cancer. Cancer is a blessing. Selfishness is a, is, a, is a spiritual cancer. The other cancer is a physical cancer. It can bring us to Repentance spiritual selfishness, while we're being selfish with people around us, is a disease which kills the soul and destroys everyone around us. When you started your family, 
You and your spouse were of one mind. In other words, both of you believed in the same way. You didn't really have anything to do with the church. You should have made an effort to bear his infirmity, praying out a person who is close to you. Again, the same thing. On your knees, praying, praying, praying continually. Look at these. Look at Elder uh, Father Father Demetrius. So he died in 70, 1972, I think. And then, you know, he suffered with his wife. Well, it was in the Second World War. I think he was married before, I don't know, for 40 years. But someone said, I don't want to suffer. I want to have a good life. You try and find the good life, but whether you're saved is another question. But this did not happen. So now you have to carry, in other words, he's saying, but this didn't happen. You didn't pray him out. So now you have to carry your self-made cross by yourself. You threw away the cross that you had with your lawful husband. And now you've created a cross yourself from your own stupidity, which is heavier than the one that you threw away. What do you call, like, for example, a woman who leaves, his, who leaves the husband? And then they, they have, then, then they lead a life as a single person. They can go out, have friends, go dancing, etc. And then the process starts. Partner one, partner two, partner three, partner four, five, six, seven. I don't know. I used to do maths. Is it like... X to the infinity or something. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. Always and, you know, and always getting smashed by the next person. In other words, smashed means they go to their girlfriends, oh, I think I found, number, I think I found Mr. Right. I think I've, he's the one. I'm head over heels, I'm going to get married, etc., etc. And then later on, oh, how's Mr. Right? No, he's Mr. Wrong. Okay. And the next person. And the next person, how does that woman feel? Like a used rag. And they're suffering psychologically from being rejected and being used. And the same with the husbands, they leave their wives, partner after partner after partner after partner. It's just like, uh, uh, to me, that's hell on earth. So they left their cross and now they're carrying a heavier cross. But will that cross that they're carrying help them to their salvation? That's, that, that's the thing. They come to their senses and they all, a lot of them also become alcoholic, drugs, because the, because the pain. Like, I mean, obviously, if you're having sex with every single person you meet, then that's a sin as well, then you feel used, then you feel betrayed, and then you have all this psychological pain, so you need cocaine or something else to kill the pain, the alcohol, whatever, marijuana, whatever they take, to numb the pain, or legal drugs, psychiatric drugs, to ease the pain, that their soul, because every time we do sins, we cut ourselves away from God. And when a soul is not connected with God, then that person dries up 
and suffers. They're in hell. We know when we sin, we feel like in hell. We have to reconcile. We know that. We reconcile with God. We ask God forgiveness. We confess, etc. We ask forgiveness whoever. If, it's, if, if the sin is to do with someone else, we ask forgiveness. And we reconcile with God. These people don't know about that. And they think that their depression comes from the fact that they haven't met Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. Or because uh, they haven't um, got a steady partner or whatever it's going to be. Maybe it's because their nose is a little bit tilted and they, once they have their cosmetic surgery, then they'll be happy. But then their ears are not right, so they've got to do their ears as well. Then it's these things under here which hang. That bothers them. And there's some wrinkles around the eye. That bothers them. Then their thighs bother them. And their backside bothers them. And that bothers them. And this bothers them. And goes on and on. And men are doing it too. It was on... Um, I think it was on Insight and SBS thing that the men are doing it too now. All these they can't they can't, as we say in Greek, isikasi, which means they can't calm down. Depressed people who threw away their cross and are tortured for nothing. If they repent, yes, that's good. So now you have to carry your self-made cross by yourself. Meanwhile, your sons need a father. And they will remind you of this fact more than once. Mum, you left him. We could have been a family. I promise to pray for you. However, I remove myself from giving any advice. The business was begun without me. And it is not for me to finish it. May God give you wisdom. That's a very good thing too. What he's, what he's trying to say is, you created the mess and you've come to me. Well, I can't do anything. I can pray for you. That's about it. But you've created a gigantic mess and I can't help you. And that part there, I remember meeting a, 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 a once years ago, a, a young woman came to me for help and she was from divorced parents. And she said that uh, for many years the parents were fighting. That tortured her. And she lived in this constant fear that they're going to separate. Then they finally separated. And then in her, in her teen years she would always be thinking of ways to reconcile them. She couldn't accept the fact that her parents were uh, separated. And this caused in her a psychological problem, very, very deep psychological problem. She could not calm down because of that. Now, when children are young, they can't, like us as adults, put things together. Their minds, especially when they're around eight, nine, they can't understand the situation. They don't have the ability and it affects them a lot. Now, 
Now, this one is a very wonderful story. Again, Saint Seraphim of Veritza. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it will show the point what I'm trying to say. One man became an alcoholic. He would steal things from his home and sell them to satisfy his passion. In other words, he would steal things from his home to buy alcohol. Like a lot of people today, they steal from their own homes or even homes of their friends to get drugs or for gambling. God allows these addictions to humble the person, to see that they thought they were so great and now they are slaves to alcohol or drugs or gambling, etc. The Greek philosophers were proud, as I've read. They were very proud that they were wise. Not, some of them were humble, actually, as we heard in, Saint, in the talk of St. Nectarius, and came very close to Christianity, even though they never had Christianity. But a lot of them were very proud. Like today, a lot of people look proud. I've got a university degree. And what happened was that God allowed them to fall into a certain passion so as to humble them, to smash them down, to, to stop this pride that was killing their souls. Because pride, if, when we have this pride, it cuts us off from God. Because that's what happened to the devil. He, he, he lost because of his pride and him and his angels fell away. So our pride makes us become similar in spirit to him. Adam and Eve lost paradise because of pride. How do we get paradise again? Through humility. So, what did, so God allowed these philosophers to fall into the... Uh, into what's called self-abuse, into the passion where they couldn't stop masturbation, just as some of you don't know. And they, they, and even in those times, they knew that that was not that was something that was low, like it was unbecoming for a great philosopher to be a slave to that passion. St. Paul, as we're going to read next term, next, um, uh, my school days, next talk, the St. Um, 20, I think it's how many years? I've, I've, I've stopped teaching 20, 1990, 23 years ago. Still there, isn't it? So, um, he, he says there that uh, because of the pride that the pagans had, he allowed them, that God allowed them to fall into unnatural things. And he talks about the sin of sodomy between the men and he also speaks about women who gave up their natural use and allowed themselves to be abused by men in an unnatural way. All that's going to be talked about in the next talk. And St. Paul clearly says this was because of their pride. Because they worshipped the uh, idols and, and of their pride and God allowed them to fall. So that's why God allows these passions to occur. So as to humble a person. 
And that's why Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, as I heard recently, about 1935, some men got together and realised that this problem is very serious and understood that the only way that people can stop is to believe in a higher being, God, in whatever, you know, everyone's got different versions, but something higher than themselves. And trusting in this higher being, whatever they believe in, depends on each person's religion. Some might be Buddha, some might be something else. But anyway, they understood that by that person depending on this higher being and not on themselves, that that helped them to uh, stop uh, their, their alcoholism. What does that mean? Humility. By showing humility because the proud person says, I can stop. The person who's addicted to pornography on the internet, I can stop if I want. Or the one who's popping pills, I can stop if I want. I can stop. Or the person who's a sex addict, I can stop. Or the drug addict, I can stop. Or the gambler, I can stop when I want. I, 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 it's always I. And that's why these people, not being much religious, but they realise that there's something there in that. And that's true. Of course, we have that to the fullest in the Orthodox Church. They also uh, confess that they are an alcoholic. And the mo yeah, that's right. That, that's what he said. That's right. And one of the most important aspects of that is that they confess, interesting, in front of everyone and say, I am an alcoholic. I am a gambler. I am a sex addict. I am a, 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 um, a, an abuser, for example, of I bash my wife or whatever. That, that they have to admit it first. Isn't that what orthodoxy is about? Admitting. Of course, we can come to the church, we can come to confession, we can admit, we can admit to those around us. But some people, unfortunately, don't know about that or they just can't do it. But if they go to these places, that's, that's okay, at least. That's, that, and a lot of times they do get help and then they come to the church later to reconcile with God. But it's interesting. Humility. This person in the letter was an alcoholic and he would steal things from his own house so he can go and buy alcohol. His wife left him because she could not live with him and she also took the child. A friend of his learned that in Vir Viritsa a monk lived who could heal this passion and he began begging his friend, the drunk in other words, to see the elder. He, in the beginning, would not accept, but then he agreed. So the drunk said in the beginning, I don't want to go, but then he said, OK, I'll go. He didn't know it was actually a priest. So one day they took the train and went to Leningrad, there where, when his friend went to get tickets for Viritsa, he went to the toilet. There, for a bottle of vodka, he sold his shirt too and his underclothing, so he even sold his own clothes so that he can get vodka. Spoken to a lot of parents have got Drago um, sons and daughters and things like that, and just it's the same thing. It's like, um, I just need $10, just please, please, $10, and I promise, and this and that. It's just all the time. But the level that they fall to, but still can't say, I have a problem, forgive me. 
I said to one woman who's got a drug addict son, I said, does, does he ever say, forgive me? He goes, no. She had, to, she, had to, she had to tell him to leave because he was dangerous. He was actually dangerous. He's in jail now. Um, I said to her, the, the way you know is when he comes and falls at your feet and asks forgiveness, but not a drug not a drug-induced forgiveness. Like a man who bashes his wife and then comes, oh, you know, please, please, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's one where he doesn't want to lose his wife. Or punching bag. Then there's, the, then there's the drug addict who says, um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, do you have, can I have $20 for my next fix? No. But there's real repentance. I said, when you see that, then you'll know that he's on the road. There needs to be that. Whether that's going to take place at... at Gamblers Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, drugs, or whatever places there exist, that's the first step. So this person sold all his clothes except for his coat and um, went and bought the uh, vodka. He himself remained with the jacket and the pants. And the, and, and the pants. His friend, when he found him, could not understand how and where he found the vodka. So they took the train and went to Viritsa. When they arrived at the elder's home, Father Seraphim was explaining the Lord's parable about the lost sheep. The alcoholic, when he heard it, told his friend, where did you bring me? Here, people don't exist, only sheep. So he was putting down the people and saying, all the people that come to this man, they're all sheep. Some might even say, you're sheep. That that you come here to listen and things like that. Why are you listening to the priest? You're sheep. What, What can you answer to them? Thank you, because I wanted, I wanted to do it, but I was embarrassed. But you did it for me. The alcoholic, when he heard it, told his friend, where did you bring me? You know, um, he people don't exist, only sheep, and he did not want to go in, but tried to leave. I don't have anything to do here. I want to leave. Suddenly he heard the elder calling him, Sergius, come here. He was shocked. Immediately he calmed down and asked his friend, From where does he know me? How does he know my name? The elder again shouted loudly, Sergius, who came with your friend, come come enter in, come here, come inside. When Sergius entered into the cell, he saw many people there. Then the elder said, you see my brethren, he spoke to the people, you see my brethren, this man, his mother mother chased him out um, out and his wife left him. He's, He's in a wretched state just now on the railroad station, he sold his underclothing and his shirt for a bottle of vodka and he came here to us only with a jacket. So obviously the elder had clairvoyance. People abandoned him, the elder said. People abandoned him. Who? Who's he, who, who, who does he mean? The wife and the, and the mother. People abandoned him, but God did not abandon him. He sent him a friend who brought him here with the hope that we would help him. The Lord helped him because there exist people who are praying for him. This is very, very important. Again, the elder is saying that even for this man to come this far is because he's being prayed for. Now a, a battle, a violent battle is happening in him. The wicked spirit which has overcome him in urging him to hit me so the devil was t- saying to the drunk, hit him, 
to hit his friend and to leave from here. And it is very difficult for us to restrain him, as St. John of Cronstein says, behind all the passions of demons, even with ourselves. We have a passion, which we all do. Behind them are demons. How powerful they are depends on our spiritual life. When we commune, for example, they lose a lot of their power. When we confess, often commune, pray. The wicked spirit hates this place, the elder said, because here they are praying. There exists icons here. So the elder is telling us clearly what bothers the demons or people that have got demons. Holy things. I read in a book the other day that in pre-revolutionary Russia, when someone was, had problems mentally, ment- or they, the doctors a lot of times didn't know, were they mentally ill or were they possessed? And I found it very interesting. They said that the way that the doctors in Russia would do it is they put a, two glasses of water there. One had holy water, one didn't. One had ordinary water. If the person couldn't drink the holy water, reacted to the holy water, then they said that the person needs to go to a priest to be helped because it was a demonic problem. If they could, if they could drink the holy water, then they would go, then, the, then their mental problems was, was um, from mental. Of course, there are people who have both. But in general, we know that someone's under the influence from the way that they react with holy things. Someone's, people say, oh, I've got a demon, I've got a... I don't, one, one day someone said that their child was, was acting like horrible. They go, maybe, maybe something's... Maybe the child's got a demonic problem or maybe someone's done something, the same story. And I said, OK, well, tell me how the child reacts with icons. Because, oh, she loves icons, she kisses them all the time. OK. And how does she react with communion? She loves communion. How can the person have demonic problems? So uh, it's how we react, how a person reacts to the Holy But that's going to be in the next talk anyway. So this person obviously had demonic problems. That's why when you try to help someone, you've got to be very careful. When a person has a passion, a powerful passion, whether it's a passion, a sexual passion, whether it's a drug, whether it's alcohol, gambling you know, whatever, and you try to help that person, the demon behind that person's passion will attack you. I always tell people, look, be careful. There's also demons of depression. Not all depressions are demonic, but there are depressions that come from that. Be careful. Don't play games. Don't think that you're a big, you're a big confessor, that you're going to go and help the person. Because if you're weak then those demons can attack you. I remember years ago, a fellow came to me. He was in the church a little bit. And I always teach people, when you're in the church for a short while, when you haven't established yourself, just just be careful. Don't try and go and convert people. Do other things. Put their names in for commemorations. Give them a book, maybe, but be very careful. Anyway, this person came to me and... Uh, they fell into a sin, a serious sin. My mind straight away, I don't know, just came to me and I said, did you try and help someone today? 
And they said, yes, how would you know? I go, well, tell me what happened. He goes, oh, there was a person and that person was not in the church. They were leading some bad life. And I spoke to them about confession and communion. And when did you fall after that? I was attacked. Save yourself, Father Saint Seraphim of Sorov says, and thousands around you will be saved. First, you've got to save yourself. You've got to fix yourself up. If you're on the verge of falling away, you don't even know how to pray, you don't commune often, you're, 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 you've got your own passions which are so much, you're on a thread of falling, and then you've got to help someone else, you will be attacked. So this person was really, um, had demonic things. But of course he was dealing with, the, with an elder now. Um, now this part here, the wicked spirit hates this place because here they are praying. There exists icons here. So my beloved, on us now depends how this unfortunate person will go and what will happen with him. That is a wonderful statement. The, the elder is saying, this person's future, whether this person is released from this demonic thing that's on him, this drinking that he's doing, depends on us, meaning those here who are, who are praying for him. Our prayers, he's saying, will be what will release this, this person. Come, everybody. Come everyone to pray for him to the Lord and to the All-Holy Virgin Mary to help him. So what's that saying for people that are married? That the salvation comes from a person's spouse from prayer. You don't have to help directly. Because when you try to help directly, as St John of Cronstein says, he says about himself, he says that all the passions mix. So, for example, i got to help someone. And this has happened because I'm, I've got my own passions, got my anger issues, I've got a lot of issues. So I've got to help someone. And the person starts to become agitated and starts to get irritated with me and starts to be rude. Depends on my spiritual state at the time. Sometimes what happens? I might then become antagonistic back to that person and might tell him off. And the whole thing just explodes. And that's happened a lot. And what I've learnt over the years is that the best thing is commemorate them. Pray for them. I've seen more, I've seen better results with that than when I've tried myself to help. Sometimes it helps, I can speak to someone, but a lot of times it doesn't work. Because I've got my own passions, I've got my own issues. That's why I'm not an elder, you see. But when, when these, these people are elders, they're meek, they're humble, they're full of grace. And when someone comes up to them and smacks them across the face, they turn the other cheek. Everyone who was then in the cell knelt together with the elder and began praying, some with tears. Suddenly, the alcoholic fell down and broke into sobs, hitting his head on the floor. So for a long time he was crying, lying on the floor, and the people around him were praying. 
Then the elder said, from now on, Sergius won't drink. There, was, there were moments in his life when he wanted to commit suicide, but he did not do it because the others were praying for him. Our prayer, says the elder, safeguards us from the suggestions of the dark powers. You can send a suicidal person to the psychiatric hospital, and as the doctors will tell you, we can't stop them. They even know themselves. They actually say, because I've dealt with that, they go, oh, if they're going to commit suicide, they're going to do it. We try, we give them medication, but basically they can't do anything. Why? They haven't got prayer. And the strongest prayer is the prayer of our relatives and our friends. Of course, we can add our relatives, meaning especially and husbands, wives. I'll read that again. And the strongest prayer is the prayer of our relatives and our friends. Uh, what do I mean? Our mother's prayer or some friend's prayer has much strength. Now, a woman comes to me and she's upset about her child, say, maybe she's got a teenager, and she goes, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, you know, and she says, can you please pray? So we do commemorations, commemorate, commemorate. How, how's he going? Uh, a little bit better, not, not really much. I said, okay. Have you been praying? They go, no. That's why I asked you. I go, no, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. You need to do prayer. So continue on the prayer. And as many priests will tell you, suddenly the priest could be commemorating the person and feel this pickup one could say like it feels boldness to pray for the person while well, before he might have been praying um, but it was something there but all of a sudden there's this strong uh, desire a, a proper spirit to pray to pray for this person anyway so you ask the person did you pray they go yes i did so what does that mean it means that commemorations are commemorations but when those commemorations are joined to the prayers of a person who loves i don't i don't know this the, the, the boy or the girl i'm a priest i pray for their soul but obviously if i was a saint i would have love more but i don't so i pray i do the commemorations to the best of my ability however when the prayers of the priest or the monastery or the monastery, whatever, are joined to the prayer of someone who loves that person who's got the problem, then miracles occur. I remember this woman who said to me that the husband was obnoxious. Since she's married, obnoxious. Never admitted his fault. Never admitted his fault. Um, uh, and always blamed her. She would say the blasphemy is too, oh, he'll never change, he'll never change. I said, you can't say that. Anyway, so again, I said to her, what prayers have you done? Nothing. That's not correct. That's not proper. But can you pray? No. Sometimes I even say no. No. You pray first, come back and tell me. You need to do prayers yourself. So the person did prayers 
And then that was good because then that helps the priest to do prayers as well. And what happened? After, I don't know, how long were they married for? 20 years maybe? 20 years of marriage. And she said to me that my husband came up and said to me with tears, I'm really bad, I'm the worst, forgive me for what I've done. She was, she was shocked. She said, I never ever thought that I would ever hear he was so hard of a person. So, that's what prayer does. Sergius stopped drinking and did not drink to the end of his life. He became a faithful Christian and a spiritual child of the elder. And what happened there? The wife left him. The mother threw him out. Uh, maybe it was necessary because he was dangerous. That's fair enough. But why did she have to divorce? Why couldn't there just be a separation for a while until the person and pray for the person to get better? What does everything have to go to divorce? When you are married to an unbeliever, well, before I do that, does anyone want clarification or whatever? Does anyone want to say anything? Maria? Is it all self-explanatory? Mm-hmm. I think even what I've read is, if I may say so, and that's not out of pride, I think it's because I learnt a lot myself, so valuable. So valuable. People don't know a lot of these things. God knows. We don't know those things. Well, then they should condemn themselves. You see, we all lose patience. Even this holy priest lost patience. That's why I read that. I thought it was, I thought it was perfect for the um, talk, that example of Father Dimitri, that he lost patience. He wanted, he, I think he was hoping that she, somehow he can get rid of her. And he was, he was a very spiritual person. So... Saints found it difficult. Remember the example of um, um, some, some saint where uh, they were suffering. They were, being, they were suffering. And uh, for, many, for many years or something, and then Christ appeared and then he said, where were you all this time? Like you left me. I've been suffering and suffering and suffering. And Christ said to him, I was always here and I was looking at your struggle, and basically God helps us even if we don't even see his help directly. And I'm here to crown you. In other words, that God will crown us. So if we understand what spiritual life is, then that our aim is salvation. Salvation comes through suffering. If you're in a marriage that you're suffering then that suffering can make a person holy, like Father Demetrius where he said that it actually made him holy through what he went through with his wife. 
and people read books and all they go, oh, look at that, how this saint became holy and that holy. And they're in this, the clouds. They're always looking at these monastic books or other things. And you say, but you've got that right at your, in your own home. It's in your home. This is your place. This is where you will become a saint. This is where you will be saved. But, as I said, today's society has conditioned us not to suffer. That's what euthanasia is about, not to suffer. Divorce, not to suffer. Everything's to do with not to suffer. But a Christian knows that through suffering for Christ's sake, by carrying our cross, that we receive salvation. When a person knows that and endures in the where they are, then, then they become holy and they can save the others around them. Excuse me, Father. Just, you know, there's a couple of examples like St. Monica prayed for St. Augustine for ages and then he changed, but there wasn't there another saint, was it Fenodius or something, prayed for his mother and she never changed, so... St. Monica prayed for her husband who was a pagan and he changed and he became a bishop and because they were both pagans before they before she got married and then she changed she became christian and through her prayers and patience and love she converted her husband but she prayed a lot for her son augustine and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and cried and she just didn't seem to be getting anywhere and she went to saint ambrose of milan and said to him you know please pray for my son who's lost to bring him to the christian faith St. Ambrose said to him her um, a, a mother's prayers and tears like you have, God will not ignore, he said, like what the saint said here, like a relative's prayer who loves someone. It's powerful. And what happened was that he did convert and he became a saint, of, she became a saint, the husband became a saint and the son became a saint, St. Augustine. Now, Saint Fanurius had a mother who was like, I think she was a prostitute. And uh, he prayed for her conversion, but didn't. He didn't, he wasn't able to help her. And he, he's a saint of, think of Rhodes, and he appeared some centuries later, he was a soldier. He appeared some centuries later, and, and he said that, you know, those who pray for my mother... I will help. Say, may God forgive the mother of Fanurius. And by doing that, he says, I, being a saint, will help you. So one can say, if he's a saint in heaven, why can't he pray for his mother? Like I, I, if you remember the talk that I did on the dead, where El, uh, Saint, uh, saint Theodosius of Chenin, how do you say it? Chenigov, whatever. He appeared... He was, his, his relics are incorrupt. 
and the priest that was taking care of his relics in Russia there, he appeared to that saint, to that, to that priest, and said, pray for my mother. And the priest said, but you're a saint and you're asking me, he goes, the prayers of the liturgy is higher than the prayers of the saints. So, miracles can occur, not miracles that are to make us proud or miracles that are like astounding or amazed, that's like that's demonic stuff. We don't we don't we don't look for those things. Or even real miracles that people run to, they go, Oh, there's a, a flower and it came back to life in front of the icon. No, that's good. Okay, that's but let's not base our spirituality on that. The greatest miracle is a person who changes and comes to the church. So that's the emphasis. Prayers of love, of someone who, if you love someone, you pray for them. Even a person who, who died not properly as a Christian, one say they were a bit, you know, didn't have time properly maybe to repent and things like that, an Orthodox Christian. A person's prayers for that person, when done with love, can take that person out of Hades. And hence why the saints say the importance of prayer. When you are married to an unbeliever. Now there is a part in, the, in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, lines 10 to 16, where St Paul says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from a husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And I've explained this before, meaning even if she has to depart for some reason, don't get remarried, stay unmarried, even though she's still married to him, and try to reconcile to, to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife, but to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife, any Christian man, in other words, has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe and he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Meaning, he's talking about now people who were pagans, people who were married but not, they weren't Christians. One of them changes becomes Christian, the other one stays pagan. St Paul is saying, if the pagan partner, the unbeliever, um, wants to stay with you, you should stay with that person. Don't separate because he's a pagan or she's a pagan, an unbeliever. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. St. John Chrysostom says that the holiness of the Christian partner is greater than the unbelief of the unbeliever. And that, that, the holy, that, that the Christian person can sanctify the unbeliever. For the unbe Otherwise, your children would be unclean. 
Because some of the Christian people were saying, if I'm married to an unbeliever and we're having children, doesn't that mean that my children are unclean? He goes, no. Because you are spiritual, then you can make your husband or wife spiritual and your children. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. If the unbeliever says, I don't want to live with you, I don't want to live with you because you're a Christian or whatever, a brother or sister is not bound in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, St John Chrysostom explains that part and he says, the issue here does not concern those who are contemplating marriage but only those who are already married. A mar- an Orthodox person can't say, oh, see, unbelievers were married with Christians, so I'm going to marry an unbeliever. No, you can't do that. They're the ones who were already married. He did not say if any brother wants to marry an unbeliever, but if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever. This means that if anyone receives the word of truth after getting married, so you're already married, then one of you converts, and the wife remains an unbeliever but wants the marriage to continue with, her, with, with, with the believing husband, then it should not be broken. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the, his wife. The, the purity of the believer is the stronger force. The believer is stronger than the unbeliever and can sanctify that. Now, Canon 72 of the Sixth Ecumenical Council, this canon is to do with being married to an unbeliever. And this is is what the canon says. But if any who up to this time are unbelievers and are not yet numbered in the flock of the Orthodox have contracted lawful marriage between themselves, the church recognised the marriages of the pagans even though they weren't done in the church. They were still married. They had children. And if then one choosing the right and coming to the light of truth and the other remaining still detained by the bend of error and not willing to behold with steady eye the divine rays, and if the unbelieving woman is pleased to cohabit with the believing man or the unbelieving man with the, unbelie- with the believing woman, let them not be separated. So you've got to see the canon saying clearly, if two people are pagans, un- unbelievers, one changes, the unbelieving spouse says, I want to stay with you, don't separate, which is what St John Chrysostom said. Uh, according to the divine apostle, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife by her husband. Elder Cleopa, obviously he lived in Romania and a lot of people weren't married, just like in Serbia, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, people there weren't married. When, they, when communism fell, a lot of them, and still there are people here today Serbs, Serbs, even Russians, they're not married because they weren't married in the church in, in, in Russia. Some of them are actually were orthodox from young, they were baptised, but they weren't married in the church. Elder Cleopa advised them that they should not divorce, but rather to pray for their husbands. These are not my words, but the words of the Holy Apostle Paul and, Saint, and Elder Cleopa quotes, For how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. So stay with your unbelieving spouse. To men he gave the same advice, and many rejoiced seeing miracles in their homes. 
many rejoiced seeing miracles in their homes through that patience and prayer and there. Now, Father John Christiankin, he actually uh, says in a letter, God's blessing to your family. Do not grieve. Pray with hope. Be sympathetic with your husband concerning his weakness and physical fear for you and himself. Glory be to God, he's not a militant atheist. He understands and loves you. Now, militant atheists is, there are people who are atheists, but they leave you alone. And there are people that are atheists who persecute those who believe. He's not one of them. He's an atheist, he doesn't believe, but he's not fighting the believer or the church. Now, these two were, mar were married in Russia, secular marriage. Now, the wife has changed. She's become orthodox. He's still an atheist. He's saying um, he, he's not a militant atheist. For your, you, for your part, must also show understanding. He does not prohibit you from going to church. This is important. He doesn't stop you from going to church. You must not bind yourself out of pity for him and go peacefully to church on each great feast on Saturday evening, Sunday morning. I think what he's trying to say here is that the woman kind of felt sorry for him and she was not going to church to make him happy. And he says, don't do that, uh, you know, unless it's causing a lot of problems. That's another thing. But she says, you continue to go to church. He's not against you going to church. So go to church. Th through your constant effort, you will make him also a participant in the church. So the elder saying, you persist in your so with fixing your soul up. You become spiritual, and your prayers, and love, and example will be able to bring him to the church. He does not go, but his other half. His wife does, for you are not two but one flesh. He's saying you are one flesh because you are married, even though not in the church. You are married. You are one flesh. He doesn't go to church. You do. So because you go to church, then he becomes holy even though spiritual, well, he, can, he gets affected spiritually because you go to church. So some, some, people, some women say to me, oh, my husband doesn't come to church or my wife doesn't come to church, but you're going and your, your sanctity goes to, goes to him or her. I'm sure that your understanding in our prayer for your husband will return him to the Lord. May the Lord preserve you. Now, do you like that? Your understanding, your efforts, your struggle, and our prayer, meaning the elders' prayer. Now, some of you say, but there are no elders here. Remember what, they, remember, what, remember what the saints said? The prayers of a priest serving liturgy is greater than those of the saints. If there, if there's, if there is an elder here in Australia, go. That's good. But if there's not, what do we do? Oh, there's no elders, I'm going to give up. No. Because we have the, 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 we have the services, we have the commemorations, we have the malebans, we have unctions, we have all these uh, mysteries of the church. People get mixed up and they think, oh, we have to have elders. It's good. But 
for guidance, for prayers, yes, but, but um, the prayers of a simple priest can do miracles. The next letter, when you started your family, you were both unbelievers and did not have a thought of God, but now you have come to know God and God is love first of all. So these two people, again, the same thing. They started their family as unbelievers, but one of them's changed. You do not think about godly love for your family. Your wife does not want to live with you because you have become a stranger and unknown to her. He's saying you've become religious, but you've become unrecognisable to him or to, to her. You've... As I said, I mentioned that before. But have you done anything to make her share in the joy of your discovered treasure, orthodoxy? Yes, she's a worldly person, but you yourself are not yet spiritual. You only flutter in spirit and your dreams climbing up to heaven instead of learning to live as a Christian on the earth. So this person was in the sky, like all doing spiritual things, and didn't care, didn't show love, didn't show kindness, didn't show anything. Well, what's the example? How's that person going to change? How's she going to change if the husband's off like that? What should you do? Pray and exert every effort to prevent a divorce. Pray and make every effort to prevent a divorce. Do not start living as a monk in the family, like the, 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 the spiritual freak type of things. Do not start living as a monk in the family that's why some people do it. They change. Women change. They become. They don't even. They don't even allow their husbands to have marital relations because they're too pure for that. That creates all problems. That that's in the next talk, because they think that sex is um, is something bad. That spiritual people don't do that. And other things like that. And they cause scandals. Uh, you're married to someone and all of a sudden the person changes. Okay, show some positive things to do with your religion. But instead, the person's in the room and the wife's in the lounge room and hears... What's that? He's doing prostrations. <laughs> bump, bump, like that, like, like full on, make sure that she can hear it. And then he comes out with eyes that look like Rasputin, <laughs> right? Because he's, he's in spiritual deception. Well, how would you... Who wants to be married to Rasputin? He might even grow a beard. Always reading. Goes to church. Never spends any time doesn't even hold his wife's hand. Why? It's not spiritual. They answer, that's not spiritual, that's worldly. That's when you sometimes feel like just smacking them across the face and say, wake up, you deluded thing. You're, you're, you're losing your marriage, you're losing yourself. If you're going to 
show, show positive things about the faith. Show kindness and love. The person says, no, I don't. What I show is I show the calluses on my, on my, on my hands and my knees from all the prostrations I do to show that I'm holy. And when I say Rasputin, I mean it too. Some people, when they're deceived, their eyes are like this, like, like that. And you think, am I looking through a glass of a goldfish? What, <laughs> what are those eyes? Why do you have eyes like that? Because I'm spiritual. That is spiritual deception, and that's not good for a family. And unfortunately, when people become new in the faith, they overdo it and cause disruption. Do not start living as a monk in the family, but as a family man, sharing your wife's feeble desires to a point. Compromise to a point. She doesn't want you to have a beard. Don't have a beard for the time being. You're not going to lose uh, your soul, lose the grace because you haven't got a beard. She wants to have fl uh, flowers on the, on the, what do you call those things, the curtains? But you want to have black drapes. As if someone died. Well, that's not how it works. Pray for her always in your soul, calling for God's help in converting her. And the last thing, St John Chrysostom, which I loved, and I've read that marriage book. There are two marriage books. St. John Chrysostom on Marriage and Family Life by St. Vladimir Seminary Press. I say it because the people that listen to it on the CD. Excellent book. Marriage, a Spiritual Arena by Archimandrite Vasilios Bakuyanis Orthodox Book Centre. Now, as I've said before, some of you might say, oh, he's trying to make us buy the books. And the answer to that is, oh, I am. I, that's, that's what I want. That's why we've got these. Buying these books from overseas and the whole hassle of it is a lot of work. And the couple of hundred dollars of profit, whatever you think it might be, which sometimes the food costs more, is not for our benefit. It's for your benefit. If it was a book, a self-help book, a self-help book, how to make a million by the age of 30, <laughs> I'm sure that many people would buy it. So, St John Chrysostom explains the verse, what, what is meant by, but if the unbelieving partner separates himself, let it be so. This is very great. This is, I mean, I had more to go, but at least we can leave off on this thing. What if he tries to force you to sacrifice to idols or to join with him in some immoral act on the grounds of marriage so he's saying, what happens if you're married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever's trying to say, you're going to come to the pagan temple and you're going to sacrifice to idols or he says to him, to, to, to her, because you're married, you're going to do certain sexual 
things that I want you to do, which are immoral and against God's law. And he makes a threat. And if you don't do it, I will leave you. Well, St. John Christum says, let him go. It's better to break up the marriage for righteousness sake, meaning for God's commandments, if you are threatened in that way. Right? As I said before, a woman says, oh, I left my husband because when he would come home, he wanted me to massage his back. And therefore I divorced. That's silly. What's wrong with that? Oh, you don't break up for trivialities like that. But when it's to do with pagan practices, magic, other religions, or immoral acts, then he says, let him go. It's better to break up the marriage because you want to keep Christ's commandments. Paul explains, says St John Chrysostom, in such a case, the brother or sister is not bound. Brother means Christian man, sister means Christian. The brother, the man, the Christian man is not bound to a wife who wants that and the wife's not bound to a husband if he wants to do those things. If he beats you every day, constantly picking fights over this issue, what issue? The issue is that he wants you to do things which are forbidden by God, but obvious things, not trivial things like curtains and massages or something like that. We're talking about serious things. If he beats you every day, constantly picking fights over this issue that he doesn't want you to, to uh, that he wants you to indulge with him in these bad things, it's better to separate. These are the conditions Paul visualises when he says, for God has called you to peace. Yes, God wants married couples to live in peace, but not satanic peace. Not that when the one, part, one spouse says, I will give in to that abominable thing to keep peace. No. The unbelieving partner is as much to blame for such a separation as the partner guilty of adultery. This leads back to the first, to last month's talk, where Christ says, only for, for, for adultery do we divorce. And then later on I read you all these things that the church established, other reasons, a threat to a person's, to a spouse's life, children, and things like that. St. John Chrysostom, this is not some person that's living in our times which is not spiritual, maybe some theologian who I don't trust. This is St. John Chrysostom, says it clearly, that a person who is trying to force you to do something satanic or to do some sexual immoral act, and that doesn't mean, by the way, if your unbelieving spouse wants to have sex, in, the, in, in, a, in a fast period because St Paul all that's going to be explained next week we're talking about immoral acts which is in full in the books in the magazines as if it's nothing 
and you know the things I'm talking about, which will be explained in the next talk. Saint John Chrysostom is saying that if he's going, if that's going to happen, the unbelieving partner is as much to blame. So, like Christ said, only under the only for adultery can you divorce someone. Well, Saint John Chrysostom says that's a, a man or a woman who is forcing their spouse to commit these things. It's like adultery. Even if that person has not committed adultery with another woman or another man, that is still classified as the same thing. And one more. St. John Chrysostom also explains the verse, Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? St. John Chrysostom says he is elaborating here on, the, on this warning. Should She should not divorce him. It is as if Paul was saying, if your husband is not argumentative, if he's not antagonistic, it could very well prove to be worthwhile if you stay with him. So stay, give him advice, persuade him of the truth. No teacher is so effective as a persuasive wife, St. John Chrysostom saying, so a wife using her tenderness, her kindness, her love, her affection, can teach her husband and bring him to the faith. Notice, says St John Chrysostom, however, that St Paul doesn't forcibly impose this idea and demand that every spouse, no matter what the circumstances, should stay, attempt to persuade his partner in this way. Such a demand would be too burdensome. St Paul does not say that Christians have to stay with an unbeliever under any circumstance. Because that's, that, that might be just, just impossible, as we already heard. Antagonistic, they're against. On the other hand, he doesn't recommend the whole situation to be dismissed as hopeless. He realises that much is uncertain. So he leaves things in the air by saying, wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? In other words, wife, how do you know if you don't stay, if you're not patient? You could change your unbelieving husband, as long as, of course, you're not being forced to do things which are completely against the church, against God's commandments. Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Everyone should remain in the state in which he was called. Was your wife an unbeliever when you were called? Stay together, don't send her away because you, th because you think the faith demands it. If you were both unbelievers. Now, this could occur even in an orthodox, which I'm going to come to, I didn't get time today, but two people, as I said, can be married in the church, completely have nothing to do with God, have nothing to do with the church, they're just born Greek or Russian or Serbs or whatever, and they just go like that to get married, but they're unbelievers. One of them become, starts to become an active Orthodox Christian, the other doesn't. Does this apply to this? Does this apply to the same? Is it the same as being unbelievers from the beginning, meaning outside the church? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't think it's a, it's exactly the same, because um, even though the the, well, the person's still baptized, and 
there's a greater chance to convert that baptised person. However, we can apply the same principle. If two people are orthodox, one changes and the other person becomes antagonistic, all the time arguing and saying to the other person, no, I want you to do things that are unnatural or things that are completely against God's law, then it says here, better to separate. However, you must give it a chance, as we saw it before, through prayer, through patience, through resistance. No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. I know a lot of people who were orthodox, they were married as orthodox. One of them changes. Before they change, they used to participate in, in unnatural things in the marriage. And then suddenly the wife or the husband realises this is wrong and says to the spouse, I'm not doing that anymore. From what I've seen, my experience is that most of the time the other person says, okay, okay. But even if he doesn't say okay, you don't submit. And... You pray and pray and pray and pray and give it all you can to prevent the divorce because that person might say, no, that's what I want. I want you to participate in these things. And then later on, where the wife or the husband says, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it, but after a while the person gives up and then after years the person converts. So we can't just say, oh, see, I remember that talk and John Christum said... If they want me to do something bad, I can run away straight away. Well, yes and no. You've got to make sure you've exhausted everything. Unfortunately, I had another 10 pages, 11 pages to go, but we didn't have time. That's okay. I think we got a lot, uh, you know, with God's help, we got a lot out of that today. I noticed that all of you were concentrating. The next talk, um, we'll continue on. There's things about when you're married to a heterodox person, like an orthodox, which is married to a Catholic or Protestant within the church. Mixed marriages, in other words. God willing, I want to try and do um, about um, magic in the, in the marriage and all those things, which people might say, oh, does that really exist? And, and all those things. Well, yeah... You'd be surprised. And I want to do the section on marital relations. I want to do the section on when people try to separate couples, whether with magical ways or through interference and things like that. So that's what's going to be in the next talk. Now, if you're a bit squeamish about the details on those, on the, especially on the sexual matters, well, don't come. Uh, this priest went to um, Elder Ephraim's monastery in, um, in America and uh, Arizona and he said that that the elder was saying that just out of the blue he started going on and on about this really, he says it's very bad. The priests need to speak up because I was having thoughts, I go, should I actually speak about these matters being, being a, a monk? And I thought, um, I was starting to have, like I said, should I do it? Married priests would be better for them to do it. 
But the thing is, they don't do it. I don't know why. They just don't do it. Very rare to find a married priest that will speak about those matters. Number one. Number two, St. Cosmas, which I'm named after, he actually said, I shouldn't be speaking about these matters, but he says, what can I do? There's so much ignorance, I need to do it. Father Ephraim, Elder Ephraim, said to the priest that went there to visit, he actually said to him, a couple came here and they, their child was like crazy. The child was crazy. And they said, um, and they said, uh, Helder, help us, help us, this and that. And the elders said to them, do you participate in certain unnatural sexual acts? And they said, yes. He goes, that's why. That's, that's the problem. Father John Christianke and all the elders, a lot of them would say, you know, if I'm, I'm, in his letters you'd see, when people would write to him, he would write back. He said, have you, have you done any abortions? Have you committed adultery? Fix these things up. Confess them. Because these things cause problems. They bring fire into the marriage. One of the, one of the reasons, another reason that I've noticed in couples breaking up are those unnatural things that they're, that, that they're doing. It's completely alien to God and, and it destroys the marriage. And I'm going to read you the canons about that. And, it's a, and he actually, the, the priests... The priests need to speak up about this because Orthodox Christians are getting their information from magazines, women's magazines, men's magazines, internet and everything else. And they're not getting the proper teaching of what God wants in, in that area. So I'm not going to apologise if, if, if I'm going to speak about that. And it's going to be a bit of detail there too. I'm not going to apologise. I would prefer married priests to do it. And I think some of them do. There's a couple in America, some in Greece that do it. But there's not much of it going on. And St John Chrysostom, he was a monk and he spoke about these things in detail, about marital relations, all those type of things. Now some of you might say, but he's a saint. His teachings were given to the world. He didn't write something that was meant to be for a few, like those stupid movies of all these secret things. Like the, oh, the Catholic Church has all these secrets about the truth about the world. and, and other, uh, once, uh, Sometimes I have to look at some of these things to know what's going on so I know what the kids... And as I said, I think I saw, started to watch one of them. It just made me sick. And I just ate dinner and I just couldn't cope. So I had to turn it off. It made me sick. And all these secret things. There's no secrets in orthodoxy. There's no secret teachings. St John Chrysostom spoke about these matters. He gave them to the church. And, he had, and the church uh, needs to teach people about these matters. And especially today, because the information that people are getting, Orthodox Christians are reading things on the, on the, on the websites, seeing things on TV, from the, and, and there's all these horrible things pouring out from the sodomites of Hollywood who are promoting 
all these sins. They are promoting these things. That's why I say that, that the sodomites of Hollywood, because they want to make out that that's all normal and natural. Okay, finished. Stand up. Through the prayers of the Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercy, save us. Amen.